Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, this is Johnny FD, and I'm back with Sam Marks. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the show. This is going to be an extended episode with Phil Canella. He is the founder and creator of the Crash Proof Retirement System. Johnny, what do you think? So the, the the name itself has a very bold marketing claim. I looked into it a mm-hmm. little bit, and what it is is you know basically an umbrella of fixed rate annuity products, which is something that we talked about in episode four with Stan, mm-hmm. the annuity man, and something that Sam has personally uh, has part of his his portfolio, not necessarily Phil's products, but uh, fixed rate annuities, correct? Absolutely. And it's one of my favorite investments. I've said that time and time again, just simply because the peace of mind and there's zero volatility in it. So I love them. It's something that I sleep at uh, very well at night at with. And I have pretty close to about 20% of my investable assets in annuity products. And Phil's crash proof system is something that my parents actually invested in and are putting a good portion of their retirement in the hands of. So this is actually how I met Phil and his team. And this stuff is really interesting to me. A lot of times life insurance and annuities, they're not, they're not the sexiest thing to talk about, but they ha- they're designed for a purpose and they're designed for specific types of financial needs. And we're definitely going to dive into all this, but I'm going to tell you what, Phil is a hustler. He's been in this business for 41 years. He's also a philosopher and he's just got a wealth of information. So you're not going to want to miss this episode. There's going to be something for everyone. Yeah. And I've actually listened to this episode already. This is uh, one that we recorded last week. So I've had a, a, a chance to kind of dive in deep with it. And even if you guys are not interested in retirement right now or annuities uh, as a product vehicle, you're going to want to listen to this episode because he goes into so much more about the economy and the future trends. Uh, I mean, just, and kind of just pro-life tips from someone who has been self-made and is successful with business himself. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Definitely stay tuned afterwards. Johnny and I are going to recap the entire episode, talk about takeaways and actionable items. All right. And without further ado, let's take a listen to Phil Canella. So when you, when you do these interviews, do you ask the questions you'd want to know about your own private practice? It's 100% scratching our own itch for the most part. And oftentimes before interviews come up, we will we'll, uh, we'll ask our audience for for listener submitted questions. So we'll, we'll bring those up depending on the episode uh, and who, who we're interviewing. But, uh, but almost all the time, we're just scratching our own itch and asking the questions that we want to know. And, and that's, I think, been the big success of the, of the podcast so far is that everyone out there has the, pretty much the same questions, but either doesn't have a format to get those questions answered or is just you know uh, too hesitant to ask those questions. That's very interesting. So do you how do you do your marketing? How do you get more people to come visit your website? Do you just do internet advertising, or uh, to be completely honest, this is this is actually more of just a hobby for Johnny and I. It's it's very successful and, and just grown through word of mouth. That's very interesting, Sam. I'm impressed. I really am impressed. And your parents are sweethearts. Very nice people. I appreciate it. I appreciate the work that you guys are doing for them. They they're uh, very happy and satisfied with what you guys are doing. And of course, their retirement's very dear. So knowing it's in good hands is a, a warm feeling for me as well. Well, I can confidently tell you, Sam, your parents have seen nothing yet. We treat our clients as if they're our parents, our brothers, our sisters. I'm dead serious, as corny as it could sound. Uh, that's one reason why Joanne and I don't retire. It gives us worth. And when we meet good folks that want to protect themselves, 
you know, we, we've put, we've put more money into our practice, um, almost as a, a give back to the industry by helping others like your parents. And we don't look at the commissions. In fact, if we looked at the commissions in Florida, I would probably want to jump off a bridge and kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm behind the eight ball in Florida, mm. but I just enjoy doing it. I just enjoy doing it. I mean, um, you know, there, there are, there's, there's a lot of, um, um, rude people. I mean, I wish I can think of a more extravagant word than rude, but that's the crude, rude mm-hmm. people uh, in Florida. And, and there's a lot of skepticism and, and the skepticism turns into being rude and crude. It's, it's a part of being rude and crude. They're so skeptic and they've been ripped off. They've been burnt. You know, it's, it's like, uh, you're walking through a neighborhood of pit bulls and you're, you're afraid that to pet one of them because they're, they're about to chop your arm off because they're used to being beaten. That is the, the mentality down here in Florida. Um, and I'd say about 30% of the people we're sitting with, with have a hard case of what I just explained. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say it would start to fade out like a, a color fading lighter and lighter. I'd say about another 10 or 20% are moderate. And then we deal with people like your parents who come in very appreciative um, and, you know, we don't push people, you know, it's, it's at their time. It's when they're ready to step forward. It's when they're done asking their questions and they're satisfied with the documentation and the logical, complete answers they've received. Mm-hmm. And like anyone that their age group, um, they're not going to understand the first time around that, or, or you have to put it in terms where they can see it with their eyes and read it and not just hear it from your lips. And so, uh, when you get clients like your mom and dad, it makes it a joy. That's and great. Yeah. Pro- the first time in my 41 career, only operating in Florida for about 10 months now, I'm ready to retire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to retire. I know it, man. It's a tough place. It's a tough place. You're you're down here in Florida too, right? Uh, I I grew up there 28 years, 27 years. Um, I don't really go back that much anymore. I go back to see my parents. That's about it. I'm actually actually out in California now. Look, I can't can't really live, move to California residency-wise, but I'm at the Nevada, California state line looking for potentially a place to live. well, you guys might be a separate country pretty soon. Yeah, I'm, I won't be on the California <laughs> side. I'll be in Nevada. So <laughs> and you know, if they, they happened, can go their own way. <laughs> if that truly did happen, right? It's like a lot of talk, like people were going to move to Canada if, yeah, you, if yeah. you got in an office. That didn't happen. But yeah, if that yeah. truly did happen, that would be very, very um, bad for our economy. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, uh, California is the size of France. So it would, I mean, it's a, it, it's a whole that is a contributor to the economy. Yeah, it absolutely. Very is. bad for our economy. And it's, it's not bad enough that the, there's a world financial crisis and no one's addressing it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all addressing the demands, uh, sex dykes, these people that, uh, you know, where they want to pee, where they want to relieve themselves. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, the simple answer to that, Sam is get a porter potty that fits in a hallway or outside and anyone can use that. Yeah. Whatever sex you want to be, you can use that. I love it. But, I, 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 you, you talked about some of this stuff in your uh, in your with the seminar that I went to down south, and I was cracking up the whole time. Well, uh, you know, there's a whole new thing here, and um, and um, you know, people like your mom and dad. Uh, not only did we grow up in different times, but because of the times we grew up and the laws were different. Um, how do I put this? Uh, uh, ethics wise and, and work ethic wise, we grew up different mm-hmm. um, because back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 
uh, you had to go out and work and earn yeah. your worth. No one had this, and many of us didn't have the success just to hand things over. Mm-hmm. Uh, our parents, I'm talking about your mom's parents, not mm-hmm. them, but your mom's parents, my mom and dad. To get a buck off my dad was pretty tough. Um, you know, five. He had a family of five, and he was a milkman. You know, he made thirty-five thousand a year, mm-hmm. and it was pretty, pretty tough. Uh, and that was towards the end of his career. You know, that was towards the in the late '80s. But my point is, millennials never yeah. had to struggle. I know. It's you know, very sad. I, and I played in the PAL baseball league in, in my area where I grew up to get a trophy. You had to be the VIP. You had to be, you know, three people got a trophy on the team. Mm-hmm. Today, these kids, everyone gets a trophy. It's a trophy. Today, yeah. these kids, everyone comes out with A's mm-hmm. because they break them up into groups and move at their pace and give them the work that they can handle. Mm-hmm. So everyone's told they're special. Everyone's told they're smart to come out with A's. Everyone's told they're exceptional by getting the trophies. And then when they step outside the door of life, what do you think happens? They it's- are greatly disappointed. They are shocked. Some of them hang themselves. Some of them kill themselves. Some of them go out and shoot other kids. They, they need the need to be special because they were told their other lives and they're having a hard time accepting it now because it is tough. They're coming out of college and they're in debt, uh, student debt. And 70% of these kids going into college, 70% of them, and this is a government statistics, they fail. They either drop out or they don't go into the workforce for what they were educated. And this is coming out of 25. So when you look at the millennials, because they were coddled, because they were brought up softly, because they really didn't have to earn. I'm not talking all of them, but a good deal of them. When they went out into the real world, they are struggling. They don't get their living home longer. They don't get married as quickly as, you know, our generation did your mom and dad and their mom and dad's generation. And what you have going on is a transition. And it's been happening, not just with the millennials. If you go back to your great grandparents they're the people who really had struggles. And then your grandparents had a little bit better than their parents. And then your mom and dad, well, if it was their great-grandparents looking at your mom and dad today, they'd be like uh, empresses, empress and emperors because that, look, the, their lifestyle mm-hmm. is so much easier than what their great-grandparents were. So each generation has changed. And as that happened, Sam, the amount of responsibility, the amount of ease increased, the responsibility decreased, accountability went away, everything's fed to them, everything's given to them, and today, the result is this. Social media, addiction. Today, uh, the, the problem is the federal laws. You know, if mm-hmm. you take high blood pressure and you fire someone that takes high blood pressure, it is a lawsuit, discriminatory lawsuit. Mm-hmm. You have someone of a minority, lawsuit. You have someone that's obese, lawsuit. So even the laws have gotten soft and catered to people. My kids are millennials. No one told me how to bring my kids up. And so I brought my kids up like most people. I gave them everything I didn't have. And that was a lot. (laughs) <laughs> so what do you think happened to my kids? It was like overwatering a plant. They went limp, mm-hmm. too much nurturing. So the point I'm bringing is this transition of ease and responsibility and accountability going away, that has diluted over time with the technology and the success of each generation. I mean, you go back just 100 years, it was all farmland and people had to grow their food to get it on the table. And that was a full-time job, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, today, it's a whole different thing. Uh, if you, you walk into a supermarket and you can prepare your food. You can have anything you want to have in 10 minutes. And everything's been coming so easy now right down to social media. So 
what you're going to see and how that's going to translate to our economy is going to be big time. The demographics are going to be a killer. Yeah, I don't know how you how you fix it or if you just plan for it. I mean, even in Scandinavia right now, they're planning on these new programs where they just pay people to do nothing all day, I mean, which, which they pretty much already do, but even well, to a larger extent, right? Now, Einstein taught me this, and I don't have to be an Einstein, but I can certainly have Einstein's uh, learnings mm-hmm. in which will quick step me to what I need to know. Einstein says, look at nature, it has all answers. So you look at overwatering a plant, you know it goes limp. You look at, you know, a plant is life, man. A plant is life. And plant has a survival um, trait in it. So if you look at the plants in France, the grapes in France, France, where they don't irrigate, they have to drive down 40 feet to get water. No one's digging that hole for that root to go down 40 Mm -hmm. feet. That's a plant. That's life. It's getting nourishment from the sun and it's getting nourishment from the rain. And now it wants to survive. It has to drill down deep to get the nutrition it needs to survive because there's no water. Now, you go over, and they don't produce crops every year, but when they do, they produce bumper crops because that plant struggles and it has, has roots, as they say, 40 feet, average root of a great plant. Now, I had a, uh, you go over here to California where they have all irrigation and a lot of wines produce the roots of a great plant in California, which is also life is only four feet. They don't have reach. They don't have to have deep roots. It's handed to them. So they do have grapes every year but they don't have those bumper years like they had in California in 95 and 97, one or two uh, historical years for grapes because of certain uh, ingredients came together with the elements of the uh, world. Mm-hmm. So when you look at life, Sam, and that's what Einstein teaches, you look at nature, which is life, and nature exists on the bale centrals of the elements of the world. You know what I'm trying to say there? Yeah. You look at the trees, how are they doing it? They don't have a brain. <laughs> they certainly don't have my mommy or a daddy for 30, 40 years. Yeah. And then they go out into the workforce. And so when you try to look and encompass on, 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 you know, from farming to having food and shelter in the twenties was a success to now having food shelter and leaving a little bit of a legacy as a success. Now today, you know, unless you're a gazillionaire or a billionaire or a millionaire, you ain't nothing. And kids were brought up on that. It started with Madonna singing about materialistic things in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And look where that's progressed. It started it with the Internet 30 years ago. And look where we are. And the Internet has made a glasshouse world. And anyone and everyone can see and do what they want. And there's no filters. Mm-hmm. Crime is up. Identity theft is up. Kids are being murdered on the Internet. Pedophiles. It's a whole world that was brought into another world. And financially speaking, morally speaking, kids speaking, it's, it's, I mean, I look at it and I think if you ladder where we were as innocent farmers, polite people, hardworking people, earning people, you go back a hundred years and you take the, the, the average profile of the personality and you come to today's millennials and we're part of it. I'm part of it. You know, I created it. I am <laughs> millennials, like I said, and you look at today's millennials, what a contrast, man. Now, when I meet a millennial like Mr. Michael Stringer, mm-hmm. my director, I call him a young Phil Canella. And there's not many of us left. Mike, is, you know, Mike gets up. He's in the office at seven. He don't leave it until seven. Mm-hmm. He runs my company. Strong individual. Uh, but when you see these millennials, it brings what Harry Dent brings to the table with his demographics. Mm-hmm. If you look at the world demographics, the two things that you have to realize, and then you understand where this economy is going to go and why it's not going to be cured. 
There's no cure. Harry Dent puts it in a mild way. Look, you have a cold. There's no common cure for the cold. It has to run its course. So let the economy run its course, Harry Dent says. Let it crash. This is a cold. And until it gets it out of its system, it's never going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Stop feeding the cold. That's Harry Dent. Now, I'm going to say a similar thing, only in a little bit more uh, logical way. The problem is when you look at the economy, we have for the first time in the global history an aging populations in all around the globe. If you go back to the 20s, the average aged person passed away at 55. Your parents could possibly be mummified today if it was the 20s. I would be gone at 63. So if it was the 1920s, people live in the 55, the birth rates back in the 20s was easily kept up with that. Think about it. You know, the people were dying off at 55, but yet back in the 20s, in the 30s, people were having five to 10 kids. There was no such thing as birth control. Right. Right. So there, there was a lot of, lot, of, lot of mistakes being made back in those days with mm-hmm. no birth control. And so you had a good balance there. You had more people being born and, uh, and less people dying. Now, if you fast forward today's uh, longevity tables, people live on average to 86, Sam. Mm-hmm. That's more than 55. And we're living longer, and we had more kids, and the baby boomers. So people are hanging around longer, and the demographics have changed. Now, from 1921 to 1961, you take that time period around the globe, the most people were born in that time frame globally in the history of the globe. It is the largest segment of births and ages going through the global times here. And they're aging. We have an age for the first time in global history, first time in all time, we have a aging global history happening here. It's it's the biggest, and no one's bringing that up. A pig and through a Python. Now, what does that mean for, for world economies? Well, number one, you got to understand, this is kind of like not a Category 5 hurricane. This this is like off-the-charts hurricane because you, you have a coming of a few uh, storms together here. Not only do you have an aging population worldwide, but you have interconnected all these economies uh, physically with these reserve banks around the globe, and you've interconnected all economies with the trades in and out of each company, country, and now through the internet and wiring and all the le- all the technology that has allowed the security and the economic system of the globe to just be instant. I mean, so with technology comes fueling of economies. If you go, and Harry talks about that when the railroad came out, it connected all the states, Mm -hmm. the economy puffed up, people were trading within states instead of California going over to Japan with a boat ride. It was easier to do that than go across country to do business in a wagon. Mm -hmm. So when the train came in, it puffed up the economy. When the Henry Ford's assembly line came in and it made a household item of a car because now people couldn't afford it because of the cost. The economy boom. Now the economy boom because people can go work at distances and still come home at night. So each technology, the, the industries, uh, the steel industry and all those industries puffed up the economy. Each, each technology helped our economy. And it's another demographic along with the aging demographic. And the last technology was the Internet mm. when that came out in the 80s. And now look where it's at today. You know, he would have thought of Facebook, Twitter and, and the rest of those uh, social medias. And look how they're developing, how quick and how nothing's private, how anybody can see anything. When your parents grew up, they had the radio or three channels. Our kids grew up, they could see anything they wanted to see from sex to people getting their head chops off online. Mm -hmm. They can talk to anyone. 
in any language online. So when you see how all these Pandora doors opened up with no oversight, the problem is going to be threefold. You have Germany, Italy, you then have China, America, and America. These four countries are major players in our economies, and they're all aging populations. Most of their populations are past 70. Most of the productive years of the baby boomers in this country have already peaked spending. And being the largest consumers of all times in all these countries, including ours, that was good for economies because there was consumption by a lot of consumers. Mm -hmm. But now that consumption is leaving. It's aging. Japan is, Japan is about 20 to 25 years ahead of our aging population. Their population is 25 years advanced. So they're already experiencing what we're all going to experience in each of these economies with aging demographics. Japan has been in a recession for 26 years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> their average age persons live over 80. When people die, they don't buy houses. Houses go up for sale. Mm -hmm. New people coming in, the millennials, they're not filling that demographic. Too many older people, too less millennials, and it's a little different. Japan has been in a recession for 26 years, and their real estate market is down 67% for 26 years and never came back. Never came back. Japan's baby boomers, their peak spending years happened in 1988. Now it's 2017, and Japan is in a deep recession, mm -hmm. and they're the third largest economy. China has collapsed. 46% since June of 2015. Now, they've rebounced up a little bit, but not much. They were at 51.66 as a market, came down to about 2,800. They're floating around 32. They never came back. They're over 30 trillion in debt, <clears throat> and a lot of their income comes to the interest payments from our country that keeps them afloat. When you look at Germany, the, they, they are the largest economy in Europe. Their aging population is right where China's aging population is. Their average age person is approaching 76. Their peak spending years are behind them. In China, where you have one or two kids for many, many years, they have a lot of empty cities. And I'm talking empty cities. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we've spent a lot of time over there and seen them firsthand. It's it's frightening stuff. And I have a lot of friends in China that live there and they've they've gone through this this housing boom and it's 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 pretty crazy what's happening. So when you look at what's happening demographic wise in real estate, this is what's going to happen worldwide and it is an eighty year cycle. And what's when it's gonna start? Let's say July. Do you know why I say July? Greece has a payment debt due of over $2.8 trillion or $2.8 I think it is. Mm -hmm. And they don't have the money. That's what interesting. Yeah, that's great. What do you think is going to happen? No one's saying anything. Everyone's paying attention to Trump and what kind of bathrooms we should have for different types of people. <laughs> no one's paying attention. But yet, there's a, you ever heard the saying, when the herd gets there, it's too late to invest? Mm -hmm. The herd is there. And the herd is now being prodded. 10% up on a GDP of 1%. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? The markets are sky high. And the GDP is as low as it's ever been in this country's history. And that's too much of a gap. And I'm just sitting here thinking, oh, my God, if we go into another deep recession, there's no more tools in the toolbox. According to David Walker, I interviewed him. There's no more federal, there's no more federal stimulus. What's going to happen to the people on the market? What's going to happen to all these 401ks? What's going to happen to all the bond accounts? Is this going to trigger the next debt crash or the next world depression?
And I say yes. I say it's going to start in Greece. Greece is not going to be able to make their payment in July. This will be the fourth time they defaulted. Mm -hmm. I would think the European Union, those economies, now that the Brits out, and there's less of them, are not going to be back in Greece the fourth time. It's like you and I going in the foreclosure and mom and dad gets tired after three yeah, times. Right. And we're going back to four. Uh-uh. That, that, I mean, these other economies are in debt too. So Greece is going to default. They're going to walk away so they don't have to be in debt. They're going to say, screw you. We'll come out with our own uh, currency if you're not going to help us. And that's what they were, they were hanging their hat on last time. When that happens, and Greece is the number 44 economy, Italy, which is among the top 10, I think they're number eight. Any of the top 10 economies collapse, Sam, all the economies around the globe together mm -hmm. would not be able to bail any of the first 10. It would be the world's sixth depression mm -hmm. in global history. And it would be the worst. The higher the highs, the lower the lows. Now you're talking about 676 market low, October of 2008 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at 2300. That is a 700 point difference and every market high in any economy it's a new market low it, that's a fact that's a newton law every reaction has an upper and equal the option well, on numbers and on wall streets and on any market in the world any market high reaches a market low well mm -hmm. the last market low was 676 prior to that the last market low was 776 so if you recall the s p 500 hits a world record high in 2000 of march 1524 and then followed by a world record low two years later by 03, 47% dropped two years down to 776. Now the government stimulates a trillion. And now five years later by 07, the S&P hits a new world record high of 40 points more, 1564. Mm -hmm. And what's the rule? It hits over the next two years, it drops 59%. And keep in mind, it was just a 40 point difference in both highs. But it goes down to a low of 676, establishing a new world record low. Mm -hmm. More stimulation comes in. And now today, these markets have been expanding for eight years. There's never been an expansion after a contraction for more than five. These okay. markets are now from 676. 676 points the S&P is up to 2,300 plus. That is more than a 700 point difference, not 40, my friend. And if you do the math, I don't want to just multiply, divide 40 into 700 and then multiply that by what the crash is going to be. Mm -hmm. Let's just make it simple. Just go down to the last market low, and that was 676. That's an 83% market drop, and that's if it doesn't reach a new record low. Mm -hmm. So when I look at that, that scares the hell out of me, and I'm not even on the market. And it scares me in a way that we're going to probably experience what our great-grandparents experienced 85 years ago through this this, this this worldwide thing, because it's not just our country, it's every economy around the world, and it's, start, and it's going to start to erode very quickly after July. Now, when I say very quickly, I mean over the next two years. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to see some significant jolts in this market in 2018, 2019, and hopefully it'll be done by 2021, 22. Now, where Harry and I differ, because he says the same time period, Dave Stockman, the... Uh, Economist, chief economist for Reagan in the 80s, mm -hmm. he says the same thing. And where I differ from those guys is how the hell do these guys say it's going to come back in a five to seven year period when we only have 51% of this country working, 49% have their hands out, 
for what I would call atrophy checks, mm-hmm. you know, disability, unemployment, uh, food stamps, welfare. I mean, come on. Now, so what you said earlier, they're just giving people checks to stay home. Back in the 50s and 40s, when we had the Great Depression, we had 70% of the workforce, Sam, 70% of the workforce. There was no food stamps, welfare, unemployment, or disability, yeah. right? We had 70% of the workforce, and it still took 26 years of 70% of the workforce to get us out of that depression from the 20s. Mm-hmm. We wow. only have 51%. What's your best guess? More than 26 years, I would think, right? Uh, it's hard to hard to imagine, I, hard to predict, but yeah, histor- historically, would, I mean, statistics I, would say, yeah. You know, I'm not a guy that does a lot of scholastical finding of his facts. Mm-hmm. I'm a guy that does these interviews. I'm a guy that looks at some some information, and I logically get it most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you, if it took 26 years with fifty with 70 percent of the workforce to come out of a depression, and this depression is going to be steeper and bigger. I'm going to say it's going to be over 26 years. It's not going to be no 10 years. Well, I think the clearest example is Japan, right? And no one ever talks about Japan, but like you said earlier, Japan's been down for 26 years, 26 years, almost three decades. It's still down and it may never recover in our lifetime for sure. I'll tell you why. You, You only have so much demographics in lives to consume for an economy. Japan had don't have the numbers. It will take uh, 50 years for them to tell their people to go out and have some fun on Saturday nights mm-hmm. to have more people because we don't have enough to fill this economy that we overextended. They overextended their economy like you and I expanding too fast. We have more staff than what we have business, and it's going to put us out of business. We grew too fast. Our economy grew too fast, but now all the people that were fueling it are dying. What do we do? That's a problem, and it's a worldwide problem. So when you have the top 10 economies and all of them have the demographics that this country has or Japan's country has, you have an aging global challenge here. How do you solve that? See what birth control did? It messed up everything. (laughs) I can make it stand up routine out of this. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know that you can solve it, right? It's, it's kind of like Harry Dent says, you kind of have to let it solve itself and stop propping it up artificially. So one of the main things is back in 2000, uh, when I was, uh, you know, I started out selling long-term care insurance. I had a personal uh, family challenge with my grandfather who brought me up and he uh, had a stroke four months after he retired and went into a nursing home. And back in the 70s, uh, that that was unheard of, people losing their homes, going into a nursing home. And uh, when when my grandfather uh, passed away in that nursing home and we almost lost the house that we all cherished, uh, that had a profound effect at me at 19. Mm-hmm. And two years later, I, I did some extensive research and I got into the insurance industry selling nursing home, Sam, nursing home insurance mm-hmm. door to door. And I did that for 30 years. And the reason I ended up doing that for 30 years is because my first 90 days, I made $20,000. I'm in college going to become an FBI agent. And after four years of an accounting degree, I'd come out making eighteen five. So <laughs> I'm figuring... You know what? I believe in what I'm doing in the industry. I found a, 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 a supplement that had a rider that would cover custodial care. Uh-huh. company was Penn Treaty Life Insurance Company at Allentown. And by the time I got my insurance license and did my research, I was 21 and I knocked on my first door in, uh, in 1976 of August and I hit the ground running. Um, 
in the 80s, they mandated these contracts, these policies. And today, since the mid-80s, they call them long-term care policies now because they have to cover certain features no matter what company you buy it from. They have to be guaranteed renewable. They have to cover all levels of care. So there's all kinds of rules today. But back in the day, uh, there was no such thing. And there was only a rider that would cover custodial care. So when I looked at the demographics when my grandfather passed away, I realized in our country we had millions of people who thought they were covered by Medicare for nursing home care. And they were. They were covered for skilled care, but not custodial. And only 3% of the time will you be there for that type of, well, Medicare pay for that. Right. And so what the end result was, I got into the insurance industry. Now today, um, when, uh, when you see what's going on in the economy, I've been well equipped and experienced kind of like a battlefield general mm-hmm. opposed to a corporate general. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm on the field. And I, you were, I, you were, you have a military background, correct? Yes, I do. Yeah, thank you for but, your but, service. Appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, but I'm on the battlefield. And, and so we all have our unique ways of how our backgrounds are and how we grow up and some more unique than others individuals. I just have a, a, a darn odd way of my background. Uh, being my desk in the hallway in second grade, they gave me a box of crowns and put me in the hallway because I was very energetic with ADHD. They didn't know what that was back in the 60s. <laughs> and I took that box of crowns and I drew and I daydreamed and I had the best time. And I didn't realize back then I was sharpening my imagination for later on in my life. Today, I have no boundaries with my imagination. I'm very good at what I do at marketing. And I make sure that when we market, I market from a foundation of truth because we all know strength comes from this truth and truth leads you to logic. There's truth in logic and there's logic in truth. And that's how you can tell when someone's trying to pull the wool over your eyes or if they're double talking you, if you don't see the logic in what someone is saying, then they're, I call that double talking. There's no truth in it and beware. So in the 90s, when I started looking at fixed in, fixed annuities, I liked them. I took a continuing education course, selling long-term care, and Sam, I was averaging $600,000 a year in income. Door-to-door salesman. A lot of money back then. A lot of I, money today. Sam, I was good at what I did. And back then, what do you think the renewals were? First year commission was 65%. Second year commission and renewals on, and you invest it, 20%. Sam. And they came out with that sliding scale schedule in the mid eighties, where if they're over, if they're under 65, it's 85%. If they're over 80, it's 35%. Mm -hmm. And now today, you know, it's still up there around 80, but the renewals like faded. I think the most you get is 10. So they cut everything in half with that, with that industry. But I was in that for 30 years and you understand why now, Mm -hmm. you know, I was working three, four days a week and I'm making a big buck. When I wanted to work five days a week, I'd make 700. When I wanted to work three days a week, I make four to 500. If I worked five days a week, I make 600. So I, you know, I'd go out and spend money with my family, buy houses, buy furniture, buy cars, and then I go out and work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was like mining a gold mine. Not a lot of, not a lot of millennials doing door to door sales today. Well, that's why I tell you, um, from the, from being in second grade, I had struggles. I had struggles. And then we all have struggles, right? And we all think our struggles are the most painful struggles. Mm-hmm. But I didn't grow up in a hood where there was gunshots every night. That's a real struggle. I just grew up where um, I, had a, I had to till my own earth to get my own fruit. I don't think that's a struggle. I think that's the natural progression of life that makes you successful. 
Mm-hmm. Now, growing up in North Philly, West Philly, or some bad areas in California, that's a little bit much. You know, you're, 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 you're growing up in a garbage-type area as a plant, and you really have to have a strong will and good guidance there from someone to make yeah, it out. Absolutely. But there's a lot of guys, like your parents, like myself, that had decent parents, and we worked and scratched just enough. It's not like we were poor. We might not have had what our kids have today, but back then, we didn't know the difference. We, you know, we ate, we slept. And we didn't care about a big house. We didn't know. There was no Madonna singing about materialistic things. So, it, it, and I like Madonna. So I just used that as, <laughs> as, as, as a psychology that has taken place because, you know, you hear this, you grow up with this, you see what you see. You're a big product of your environment. And that's where that saying comes, monkey see, monkey do. I mean, that's very true in a lot of different uh, species. Phil, so, ju- Phil, just a uh, quick question on something you said earlier. You wanted to be an FBI agent. Were you a criminology major? No. Now, remember, I'm very transparent, and, I'm, and I used to be embarrassed about talking about my scholastical ability. Mm-hmm. ADHD, Sam, uh, dyslexia, they are two abilities, but society treated it as a disability with me. And not only did they treat it as a disability, they didn't understand it. And so I was isolated. Turns out isolating me made me an individual and a leader. I don't mm-hmm. flock with other birds. I'm kind of like an eagle. You find eagles one at a time. They don't flock with other birds. They're direct, and they do soar high when they need to. And that's because of my background. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I struggled in school. When I graduated, it took me 13 years ago through 12. I still couldn't read, and I still couldn't spell. I had to go back to my third-grade teacher because I wanted to be an FBI agent, and I knew I wasn't getting into college mm-hmm. because of my SAT scores. I went back to my third grade teacher and she tutored me for eight weeks and I learned to spell and I learned to read. And then I got in one of the oldest black schools in the country, Cheney University. Hmm. I'm easy to spot the school pictures, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> I was the only white kid in the school. It was in 1976, yeah. man. And the, the amazing thing was, like I said, I had an odd background. The amazing thing was I had just come out of boot camp for officer training and I'm looking like, you know, a completely bald head. And that mm-hmm. was unheard of back in the 70s. You know, Yul right. Brenner and, uh, and uh, Teddy Savalas were the only two guys back then that had, uh, and Isaac Hayes, the three people that had the, uh, the bald heads back yeah. then. Today, it's a, it's a popular thing. Mm-hmm. I was never picked on. I learned at Cheney. The one year I was there, I learned perseverance, understanding, uh, uh, communication. I mean, I learned patience. I don't know if I could be as patient with as a minority Mm -hmm. as what I've seen at Cheney and how some people are treated. So Cheney taught me something that no school could teach me because I was never in an environment where I was a minority. Mm -hmm. I I went to a white high school and we had 4,000 kids. And if there was one or two black kids in the room... In the school, I mean, that was unusual. Mm-hmm. We didn't have contact with black people as I was growing up. So it was unusual to see a black person. So I was kind of petrified going here my first right, day. Right. Uh, but it's changed today. Mm-hmm. But no, I didn't get a chance to go for communication. Everything has been from what I learned in life. Everything has been a long time. I've been an apprentice, knocking on doors, learning psychology of people, from wanting to be successful. When I first started at 21, after six weeks, dealing with people in their 70s and 80s on average, I came home and started putting baby powder in my hair to gray it up. I wanted to look older. I felt too young. <laughs> I put glasses on and start knocking on doors. I remember a time I walk in what a cane. I wanted to make it so bad in this business. I had such a passion for it 
that after about five years, I wrote my own paycheck. I was always independent. I was never captured with a banker's life or casualty or, or a uh, mass mutual or, or any of those firms that all approached you, you know, mm-hmm. the potentials and all those. I was never into doing that. I was always my own drummer. Mm-hmm. So I did come up from the ground, from, from not going very well in school. Today, I still struggle with spelling. In fact, I sent down an email a few years back because I had over a thousand, three thousand. I was featured on the Senior Market Advisor, which used to be a very popular magazine back then. Great, great photo, by the way. Very iconic. <laughs> yeah, I was pissed about that photo. It made me look like a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it when I saw it. I'm like, this guy's the man. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! Can you imagine all the regulators that said, "Look at this cocky yeah. ass looking yeah. this guy." And what? Forty million in nine months. Yeah, he's holding a gun to people's head. Let's go investigate him. That brought. That was sweet and bitter. Mm-hmm. That brought a lot of investigations, but it vetted me. Mm-hmm. But it also brought a lot of good comments. I had over 3,000 calls from around the country of guys that wanted to come in just by reading the article I put mm-hmm. together. And they would often say to me, why would you give all those secrets away? And I say the same thing today. I say, they're not secrets, man. I said, I don't have any competition. I have colleagues that can help change the industry, but I don't have any competition. Mm-hmm. So when all these calls were coming in in February of 2008, after that was released in January, mm-hmm. I decided to sit down and write this email. And I'm thrilled to death because I know how to use the computer. I'm really good at typing with all my fingers. I learned that in, uh, in ninth grade. And I'm very thrilled that I have spell check because I'm still like a paraplegic when it comes to spelling. I mean, it's, it's tough for me. I, if someone's not there to help me to spell and I don't have spell check, I'm going to struggle. I'm not going to be able to write anything. Yeah. So I still struggle there. But the point is, uh, when I wrote this email, it said this. It says, thank you very much for all your interest. Please depend on my staff. My staff are extremely talented. So if you have any questions, any concerns, or any contact, please contact my staff. Thank you very much, Phil Canella. And I was hoping that blast email would ease some of the calls, and I gave him an email and another phone number. I hit spell check, and everything comes back fine. But there was a word that wasn't the word I wanted to say, and it was very embarrassing for me. I come in the following morning, and my staff is rolling on the ground. There it was a five after eight, and they seen the email I sent that at eight o'clock, and the timing was perfect. I walk in, and I see everyone laughing. They see me; they even start laughing harder. And now I'm looking at them. What are you laughing at? Now they're even laughing harder because they don't know what I'm what they're laughing at. I mean, there I had to wait three or four minutes for them to stop laughing, catch their breath, and tell me what the hell's going on. And they hand me the email, and here's what it said: I misspelled the word staff. I didn't hear an A; I heard an I. So now it says stiff. <laughs> I now have the best stiff. It's an exceptional stiff. It's the best stiff in the country. Feel free to use my stiff. And, and I was mortified. I mean, they're laughing, but I, I got my first hot flash in my life. Oh, I, man. I, got, I, I felt my whole body turn red. Because, I, was, I mean, it was such a glorifying moment for me to be recognized by my peers after all the years I worked hard, and I'm now being showcased, and then I write that stiff. I'm so embarrassed. Well, we've all, we've all sent those emails that we regretted a lot of times after a glass of scotch or two, but I don't know if anyone's got one on, on the parallel of that that you have. No, I don't think so. So from that day forth, I don't send emails out. Now I truly do hire people from my weaknesses. I have quite a few, um, so I have a lot of staff, but... 
My strength is coming from my roots. As I tried to explain to you, it's all about stretching. It's all about reaching. It's all about pushing your limits. And this is what the officer training camp has taught me. This is what the Marine physical fitness tet has taught me. And this is what going through and working the last 40 years have taught me. Nothing easy is worthwhile. If you don't stretch, you're not going to have reach. And if you don't have reach, who are you to teach? Well, if said. you can beat me, you can teach me. Until then, I've reached, I'm teaching, and I always wanted to preach. So this, this fulfills a lot of things for me um, because it works. So in life, it's very simple. If a damn apple seed can pop out of the ground, out of dirt, and at some point bear a fruit that can sustain life, what the hell can you do with your body, your spirit, your mind, your earth suit, and life? I love it's it. It's all about putting people to their to, to task. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the best way I can explain it uh, is the way I really became successful. I learned through my physical ability. And my physical ability came from my determination and my discipline. Mm-hmm. And that's the will of a man or a, per- or a woman. And um, if I wanted to do 10 push-ups when I was 12, I can only do six. I had a struggle. For weeks to get to 10. Mm-hmm. So I had to struggle through seven, had to struggle through eight, had to struggle through nine, had to struggle through and get to 10. And when I got to 10, did I stop? No. So you got to struggle. You got to be stretched. You got to reach. And a lot of people, Sam, say they're going through bad times. Well, that's the way you can look at it. How about you look at it? You're going through a time in which you're being stretched and it can be your greatest success if you realize it, or you can be your greatest failure if you don't. Yeah. You're being tested. You're being stretched. And no matter what it is, someone don't like you at work, uh, you're not making enough money, you're being tested. Stand up to the test. I like what you, what you mentioned about uh, ADHD earlier, because so many people today are diagnosed with that, whether rightfully so or, rightful, or wrongfully so, and put on medicine. And I think, like you said, it's, it's an ability, not a disability. Some of the best CEOs and entrepreneurs of the world have ADHD and OCD. Well, and that's something they're never going to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, 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 it's a drug. Uh, the, uh, it's the drug industry theory. You know, the, the, it's a whole other subject. These pharmaceutical people never come out with cures. They just come out where you have to continue to be on the drug. Uh, there's a cure uh, I forget what it is that you just take for vitamin C and it does away with it. Uh, but the FDA, the FDIC, the uh, FDA don't recognize it. So when it comes to, there's a drug for everything that was predicted back in the sixties when they started going down to space and giving people little pills with vitamins in them and said, there'll be a drug for everything. Then the movie Stafford wipes came out, you know, and that, and that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to put my two kids on a, on Ritalin. And, you know, my wife and I had had a lot of different uh, basic different opinions on the kids shouldn't sit on the couch all summer. The kids shouldn't be on that medication because you don't want to put up with their energy. They just need to be directed. Um, and so, you know, that that was a 27 year marriage that that I had to leave. But it became a good training wheel for me. Mm-hmm. In fact, Sam, I had two training wheels called two ex-wives. But that's about <laughs> that's what life's about. Learn it, right? You know, I didn't get on my two-wheeler without training wheels first, and I didn't have a successful life until I learned from my failures and my mistakes. I didn't have the ego to say, hey, it was her fault all along the way. I looked at it, what I could have done so that she wouldn't have done what she did. So I always put the blame on me and what I could have done better, and it turns out you continually sharpen your skills if you continually learn, and you can learn more off a bad situation than you'll ever learn off a good. Because if someone praises you, it grows your ego. But if someone criticizes you, it grows self. 
Mm. I'd rather be criticized and grow me. So uh, that's one thing I say when I, before I begin my program sometime, because a lot of times I will mispronounce words mm-hmm. and I will ask people if I mispronounce a word, please don't uh, feel bad criticizing me because I'd rather grow myself than grow ego. I'd rather have the criticism than the compliments. But that's, that's, the, that, that's the end thing. And when, where, where it happened was after about 30 years, 35 years, as a door-to-door salesman and I hit a ceiling where I was in my 40s and I no longer was interested in working two days a week. I wanted to get something. I wanted to make more. You know, I wanted to be the guy that make three, four million a year. And now I want to be the guy that makes three, four hundred million a year. Mm-hmm. And so I always raise the bar. I never satisfied. And, and so I don't look for it to retirement. I don't look for it to stopping. I'm a true warrior. Uh, and I, and I, I have a mission. I feel I have a purpose and it gives me worth. And I'm happy that I found that in the industry that has made me very successful and in an industry that I didn't realize that I've helped a lot of people along the way. It's almost like it's a wonderful life and it's a Jimmy story where, you know, if he wasn't in the world, how would the world be without him? Mm-hmm. And as I look back on my 41 year career and I think of all the children that came in and were thankful that mom and dad had insurance for nursing home that they never even heard of. And they got their inheritance. When I think back of the people we saved from the 08 crash, and I think of all the 5,000 people like your mom and dad that we have off this market, and I truly believe in what I see through the interviews that I've conducted from the top researchers to the Harry Dents to the Mark Fobbers. I have interviewed him uh, twice, Dr. Mark Fobber, Andrew Huzar, the quarterback of quantitative easing. H. David Cott. I asked them all that Dick Morris. I asked them all. Collinson from, she's the vice president of Trans America's retirement research there. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Roper, she's the number one consumer advocate for finance. I mean, I asked all these people, so many more interviews we've done. And I asked all these people the same damn question at the end of the interview. Have you ever heard of crash-proof investment accounts that go up at the market with no fees and they follow the market for the gains, but if the market crashes, you lose nothing? And I'm talking to people that have been in the research area for many, many years, like Alicia Minnell, 40 years with the Boston Institution. She's the director for the retirement research there. She said, Phil, if I knew a vehicle like that, and she chuckled as she said it, and I have it on a recording, she said, I'd be a rich woman. And what do you think my response is? Well, you should be a rich woman. <laughs> in fact, I, would, I got mad. And uh, I ended the interview very quickly because I was, I knew I was about to confront her. I was like, how can you be in re- retirement research for 40 years? How can you be in retirement research for 40 years and not hear these vehicles? And it's 2014 and they came out in 1995. That's mm-hmm. the question I wanted to ask, but I didn't want to pull her on the carpet. But after um, asking her a few more questions after that, what I found out was because I, when she said she wasn't aware of it, I then started asking her, well, what gives you, what, what makes you research on the things you research? And she says, well, we get grants and we get people that give us and we do the research. I said, well, who's your biggest contributor? And what do you think she said to me? The federal government. So the federal government is, is, is fueling with Boston College research as what's a safe retirement. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Alicia Minnell never even looked at these vehicles. They only look at securities. And how stupid is that? Mm-hmm. Really, seriously. How stupid is that you have these wonderful vehicles, wonderful vehicles that went through the depression. Babe Ruth had a fixed annuity. Babe Ruth had access to his money. Everyone in the bank, everyone with Wall Street, mm-hmm. they were jumping off bridges and standing in line because they had no money. Yeah. Babe Ruth had access to his money. Ben Franklin had an annuity. Annuity funded the 17th Spanish War. I mean, so when you look at these annuities, 
They're very good instruments. But Sam, the word annuity is a bad word because yep. of variable. The word annuity is a bad word because of the way media portrays all annuities. They put it on the one blanket. So I came out with the words that they're a crash-proof investment account. Mm-hmm. And I got challenged. Oh, I got challenged. My competitors didn't like the word crash-proof retirement show in Philadelphia. I mean, I, I had Adam Bolt with the money store. I, I had a guy named Steve Cadasco 10 years on the air on Saturday mornings. And now I got Edelman on Sundays. I mean, I had some uh, national syndicast shows on Saturday on CBS radio before I arrived for many years. And then here comes a show called Crash Proof Retirement Show, uh, starting at 11 when all the other shows were from 7 to 10, 10 to 11. And then Canela comes on with Crash Proof Retirement. And I am doing nothing but telling people they can have a crash-proof retirement. Why would you operate under the illusion of Wall Street? Yeah. Why would you be, think you're diversified in mutual funds in which it's, it's all risk? Where's the diversification of stability and stabilization? And how do you think these people responded in Philadelphia? From the president to the CEO of Wealth Banks to the guys that have their financial shows, they're in an uproar. Yeah. In fact, so much so, they were complaining not only to the executives here in Philadelphia, but they were complaining to the head executives in New York that head the whole national CBS radio network saying there's no such thing as a crash-proof retirement. This guy's a hoax. So I've been well vetted mm-hmm. uh, in the eight years that I've been on CBS radio, and I've been well put people on notice that if you want to give the sword of truth, someone that is wailing the sword of truth that is true himself, if you want to challenge that sword, it's on my hip. I will wail it at any time, at any one, mm-hmm. for any reason, if they think they're going to say we're doing something wrong. Yeah. Now, we've stood up to the New York Post. We stood up to Philly.com, and we're still sore fighting with them. And we stood up to big investment banks, and we stood up to a lot of complaints anonymously that went in to a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly tell you this, man, because I have it on video. In 09 and 20. 20- 08, 09, and part of 2010 was, was the vetting time frame from the Justice Department, from the Security Exchange Commission with letters and threats to hidden investigators from the insurance department uh, and, from, and from the security industry in all my programs, all of my programs. I had the chief uh, investigator from the Justice Department out of Delaware attend one of my programs. And you know what? I make a joke at it at every program because I recognize these people by the type of shoes they wear. And I, that, well, you see me yeah, do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was checking my shoes. I'm like, Paul, you, or Phil, you, Phil, you're looking at my shoes, man. My I, grandma I, gave me these. <laughs> I picked them right out. Yeah. We're, we're at a place called Harry Sorvay and Grill, and there's about 187 people. And you see the way I set my program up. Mm-hmm. And so the videos just start, and I stand in the back, and I oversee everything and watch everyone walk in. And my videos just start, and I see these two guys register, and they're in their 40s with tight haircuts and shirts mm-hmm. and I'm thinking competitors or regulators. Mm -hmm. They sit in the very back. They open up my pamphlet and they start rifling through it. Mm -hmm. I mean, like they're looking for something that's wrong. And I'm thinking, okay, they're regulators. They're going through it too fast. They're not caring what's on it. They're just seeing what is it. I go up and start talking. And, you know, I give my disclaimers up front, what I am, why I am, and who I am. And about an hour and a half into it, these two guys get up and leave. Now I'm dying. But I still got another 30, 40 minutes to go. And I'm dying to know who they are. Uh So I break them meeting and I run back to my receptionist. I said, Lisa, did you get those guys business cards? She says, yeah. And she hands it to me. And the guy told me to tell you, Phil, you're doing a good job. And I look at the guy's card. Uh, his, he was uh, Michael Mayen, the chief investigator for oh the my Justice gosh. Department. 
And we've been well vetted. Wow. We've been well challenged with a lot of things that we say, mm-hmm. but I defeat it not with law, not with scholastics, with logic. Mm-hmm. So if people say you can't call an annuity an investment account, that refers to a security. Yeah. And I'll say to the investigator, well, why is that? Is Webster Dictionary wrong? If I look the word investment up, it doesn't tell me security. It tells me that you make a deposit into an account and it grows. Mm-hmm. That's what these do. Mr. Yeah. Canelli, you say you don't sell annuities. What are they? I say, sir, do you know what an annuity is? We take out the Webster's Dictionary and we look the word annuity up for the good investigators and we have them read what the definition is. It's an income stream over a time period, equal intervals. These are accumulations, but they do have an annuity component in which you can exercise. And by the way, if it's an IRA, you never want to exercise the annuity component. You don't want to flip that switch. So the word annuity has tainted our industry. And it steers people away from one of the all-time, the best financial instrument that has ever come out of the brick house industry called the life insurance institutions. And I agree. And I, I, the, one of the first investments I made, actually the first investment I made after we sold the business was into annuities per my dad's suggestion. And I get dogged all the time, not because of the structure of the annuities, just because people are saying, like financial advisors saying, you shouldn't be putting money in annuities at your age. And my annuities over the last three, four years have outperformed a lot of my financial accounts, which I don't have anymore, which is crazy, right? That is, no, it's not crazy. That is good. Mm -hmm. Now, I've taken it a step higher. And it's not because I'm a smart guy, Sam, because I'm not bragging here. I'm I'm educating you. Mm -hmm. I've taken it a step higher only because I started knocking on the door at 21 and I told you about the pattern, the glass. I always try to improve myself every single year. Right now, I try to improve myself and I asked you questions up front. I interviewed you. Mm -hmm. I want to learn, right? And you should use some of my interview on your show because you were very interesting to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate that. You're a boss too, man. I don't don't get asked too many questions on this podcast. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) You don't interview too many Canellas. So you were interviewed, man, and you should cut that up and use that too. You shouldn't be an exception. You should let your viewers know that, hey, I'm a boss too. And here's what I've done and what I've learned by looking at my own website. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be a, that would be a great thing. That would show what kind of man you are. You're, you're not gold plated. You're solid gold. You're doing what you're asking your, 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 your people, your viewers, whatever you call them, uh, your followers, Mm -hmm. listeners, audience. Yeah. Yeah. When people say I have followers, I feel like I'm talking to Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) I got followers, you know, Martin Luther had followers, people who've given their lives up. Millennials really want followers. (laughs) <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. Do you see the play on the language and all the, the, the bad singles that millennials are getting mm-hmm. the bad single, right? They're all getting these singles. But the bottom line here is with, with these fixed indexed annuities, we take it a step higher. And the mm-hmm. reason why is because I've been doing it a long time. When you do something for 41 years and you'll get this, Sam, you have a spirit of a strong will of a man that will be successful. It's those that don't get it soon enough. They give up that success and what everyone has to understand, it don't happen overnight for movie stars and it don't happen overnight for the everyday successful entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. It takes 20, 30 years. And in my case, I'm 41 years into an industry and yeah, I make a couple of million dollars a year, but I still can't land the helicopter on the back of a boat. And that's my idea of success monetarily. Now, other than that, I feel I'm successful on every other level. I've had people work for me that got married, bought houses, had kids, and they're still here. So I feel like a little bit of a uh, Jack Welsh, maybe not even. 
a speck of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when you have a company that's successful and then you have families that it supports, you start to feel like the apple tree bearing apples and giving fruit after life. And that's where nature has taught me. And that's where Einstein taught me. You plant a seed and if a seed can become an apple tree to bear fruit to sustain life, what can a human be? So you look at your Bill Gates, your, your, you look at uh, the, these CEOs or these large firms and their founders and CEOs. These guys are the apple trees that bear the, the staff or the apple. And then that apple is sustaining their staff's families. I mean, it is a beautiful thing. And that's what's called nurturing. Mm-hmm. That's nurturing. And that's where Joanne and I had come to a decision when we met. I was 53 and she was 57. And we, I said to her, if we do everything that's best for the client, we will have one of the best practices that has ever been seen in this country, but it all about the client from picking the products to putting it in a system to doing the interviews. And we made a decision then that we we're going to do nothing but nurture. So when I stopped trying to make money, I tripled and quadruple when I tried to make money. Mm-hmm. So when I was making the six and 700,000, I'm thinking to myself, how lucky am I? My friend went to school for 25 years. He's 33. He's been in practice for five years and he's on 24 hour court. And he makes 250,000. Well, when you're making 600 grand, 250,000 is not going to pay my lifestyle. So it doesn't seem like a lot to me, but look at all the stuff he had to go through. Look at what society did to him. They kept putting him on track with first grade, with sixth grade, with 12th grade. Okay. Now I'm so used to going to school, mean condition. Let's go through college. Okay. Let's go after grad. I mean, it's a damn long track. And very few kids come off it successfully. Phil, I know some people that have lost money in banks, which for most listeners sounds crazy. But for me, it hit really close to home because they lost considerable amount of money. The Bank of Cyprus, a couple other small banks in 2008. Can you explain why insurance companies are actually much safer than banks to have money in? Well, first you have to understand that when, excuse me, President Clinton left office prior to leaving in 1999. He deregulated the Glass-Steagall Act. Mm -hmm. Prior to 1933, banks were not regulated. The Glass-Steagall Act regulated these banks. So that was the reason Clinton got into office. He got in through the bank lobbyist, and I believe that's obvious today with what he gets paid to go on a a speaking tour and his wife, Hillary, Hillary, when he left. He basically deregulated the banks. And when he deregulated the banks in 1999, sort of like opening up the jail cell and letting two financial monsters out. And today they've been gobbling up the everyday investor. These are brand new industries that rose from the ashes of the deregulation of the Glass-Steagall Act. And the Glass-Steagall Act simply said this, Sam, that banks are no longer going to be in risky business They're going to be accountable for the money they lose themselves and not be on the depositors. And they're going to be in the interest lending business. They're going to be so conservative. They're going to operate like a public utility company. That was done by President Roosevelt in 1933, along with the FDIC being put in place and along with the Security Exchange Commission. Those three things in 1933 stopped a vicious cycle called the Depression and market crashes for over 50 years. We had safety in banks. In 1999, when that was deregulated, the Glass-Steagall Act, that opened up the jail once again, and banks now became investment banks. All of a sudden, your little local bank, which was safe for 50 years, you'd walk in, it still looked like the same bank, 
but now it was a shark in disguise. Now you have a little guy called the wealth manager sitting behind the desk that's not being regulated. The investment banks are not regulated. It's a new industry, and people are being fleeced right in front of their nose and not seeing it. Mm -hmm. It's called ongoing fees that these wealth managers don't have to disclose. You've seen what we show through the attorney general's office, excuse me, through, through the inspector general's office, H. David Cotts, how the federal regulators allow executives from these investment banks to come to the SEC, make their contacts, learn the war plan that the SEC is putting together to protect the everyday investor. These executives from these investment banks learn that, and then they're allowed back into the bank they originally mm. came from and share that plan, share the war plan. This is nothing less than treason to the everyday investor, and we are paying these people to do that called our federal regulators. Now, it's not my opinion. It's what the inspector general, who's there to uncover, has uncovered that no one wants to let you see. You won't see it on mainstream media. And this is not boasting. This is, this is the, these are the tones of being disgusted that, you know, I'm a little media company. We have five people in our corporation with retirement media. But I think it proves, Sam, you don't have to be a big corporation to make a big difference in people's lives. When we show the inspector general and what these investment banks are getting away with, it shows the deep-rooted cancer mm -hmm. that is embedded in the financial industry and why it's stacked against the everyday investor. Yeah. Oh, I cringed through that interview. Uh, it was. Will we be able to share that? Is that something that's public or do you only show it at your seminars? No, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is an I And get what Phil Canella, Joanne Small, and what our entire Crash Proof Retirement Team is. Mm -hmm. We are consumer advocates. We don't do this for our own wealth. We do it to share. Joanne and I, in our opinions, put our lives on the line for the everyday investor because we're standing against federal government agencies and we're pulling their pants down mm -hmm. and showing their ass. Excuse my asset. My, my, my language. But say that word because many wealth advisors have their heads so far up their clients' assets they can see the back of their teeth. So we want to show where that first letter, those first three letters are coming from. Mm -hmm. We want to pull down the pants, so to speak, of the federal government agencies and show you exactly the cloneism that's going on with the federal government agencies and these wealth managers along with these investment banks. Mm -hmm. You know what an executive is? An executive is a flamboyant or, 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 or a more fancy of a wealth manager. To be an executive of an investment bank, you had to be a damn good wealth manager, and that meant you had to be really good at hiding the fees and charging fees yeah. on everyday investor and not letting them know. So when you look at and you're saying in uh, investment banks, that is a big problem, the deregulation, because not only investment banks came out of that, but hedge fund institutions. Mm -hmm. And I think we make two perfect points with hedge fund institutions and investment banks. With the hedge fund institutions, I would love to play the Kramer clip for your audience. Oh, gosh. Uh, another, another, another audio clip that I just cringed through. But so, so eye-opening. And no, no, one, no one sees that. No one listens to that, right? It's, gosh darn it. The guy says, this guy who you hear every morning at 9 o'clock telling you what to buy and sell so sincerely, so passionately, mm -hmm. so bright-eyed, looking into the camera and flaring his elbows around. Everyone likes Jim Cramer, including his colleagues. Well, now you know why. He is going to be on this interview, and he's not going to be shy. He's going to tell you you don't want to do anything truthful. He wants to tell you that you take a situation and you create a fiction to change how it looks. Now, you do this because the SEC doesn't understand it, so you're going to do it anyway.
And what's very important, he says, is you can't let the markets rise. You got to know how to manipulate it by hitting with firepower and keeping them down. And then what's also important is you got to leak it out to the press. Oh my God, Sam. Mm -hmm. And it's very important that you get it on CNBC. CNBC. <laughs> he says that. And then right after those words, you hear this man say, and then you have a vicious. What do you think the word vicious means? The word vicious means for those poor believers called investors who are unsuspected of these kind of ill-fated practices, insidious practices. He says, then you have a vicious cycle after getting it on CNN or CNBC. You have a vicious cycle going down. And then you hear his whole tones change. He says, that's a pretty good game. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't admit that anywhere else but here. I wouldn't say it on TV. Mm -hmm. What do you think that shows about media companies like NBC. Do you think it goes, it goes right aside what Trump is saying to these non-believers? There's a lot of fake news because Phil Canella puts up with a lot of fake news. Philly.com is one. Philadelphia Inquirer is another. You have journalists on, a, on every level come out. They see a good financial firm and they want to throw ink in their fish tank. They want to muddy the waters. They don't want people to know there's good firms out there. They just want people to know these people who sell you annuities are bad firms. They are for people being in securities. And what are people going to say when the markets collapse? And that's going to happen within the next 36 months. Mm -hmm. And I would almost put my life on that. When Greece comes up with their situation in July and they can't make their debt due and the European Union walks away from them and they walk away from the European Union and start their own currency, mm -hmm. Italy's going to turn around and say, hey, we owe you trillions of dollars, too. Why is baby brother allowed to walk away? We're one of the top 10 economies. Why, we, what, why would we stay and pay? Mm -hmm. We're going to walk away. And now you have the official start of one of the epic storms, economically speaking, in the world. But like everything else, you can bring the world economy to the brink. It'll never go away. It'll be those suffering that stayed on the market and then you'll have the federal governments come into the rescue after the catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Like every catastrophe you see from Katrina on, they always come in when it's too late. And what's going to happen? Great change will take place, like Teddy Roosevelt did in 1933 to stop that type of cycle. Great change took place, but it took 50 years. <laughs> and people stood in line and died in line. Mm -hmm. So the great change that will take place will not affect those that went through that change and will not help them into their future until they're dead and gone. Mm -hmm. It may help their grandkids. So we're in this, and it's scary. And that's why anything I can do, any interviews that I can share on your podcast, and I have quite a bit of them, and they're powerful ones, anything that we can shed light on, any demographics that I can talk about, I would like to let people know two things. We are consumer advocates, you and I, Sam. Mm -hmm. And what we do as consumer advocates on this side of the table is we don't show investors what the boss is doing, and I hope your investors see what this boss is doing because I eat my own recipe. I'm the chef that owns a restaurant that eats his own food. I have my own crash-proof system. Mm -hmm. I have every single penny of my retirement account in it, and I thank Babe Ruth for that. I thank Ben Franklin for coming out with the statutory accounting principle system that life insurance institutions can't go into bankruptcy. Your vehicles are more safe than people realize. It's not just as safe as the pain clinging ability of the company that holds it. Mm -hmm. It is as safe as the whole industry. Because when one insurance company starts to go belly up, all insurance companies are required in that specific industry to come together as a safety net 
and float that insurance institution's obligation, commitments, and contracts. That was a question I had for sure. Uh, how do that? How how is that? Is that through law or some type of institutional hedge that they they do that and they group together? Whereas banks clearly don't do that. You asked this question, and I went into this long explanation. But in short, banks put 97 to 98 percent of the money you hand over to a bank is not in that bank account right that is out and leveraged in loans and risky business called mortgages and equity loans and auto loans and personal loans and business loans and all that mm-hmm. so a bank is only required to hold two to three percent depending on the size of the bank so 90 97 percent is being leveraged if every american or even just half the country went to the banks and wanted their money back there and then, it'd be a 1929 situation like you see with The Wonderful Life and Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) It hasn't changed. Banks from the 20s never had to reserve more than 2 to 3% of what they hold on the depositor's behalf. Wall Street, obviously, doesn't hold anything. They're allowed to leverage 100%. You put $100,000 in a mutual fund, $100,000 is out there on the limb. There is no safety net. You're on a battlefield. And when your account starts to bleed to death and hemorrhage, there's no financial medic coming on to the field to save your mutual fund. You are skydiving with no parachute when you're on securities. You have no floor but zero. In a bank, you put $100,000 in. They're holding two to 3000 of it. The other 97000 98000 is going out in loans. Mm-hmm. Now, insurance companies, much different. In 1780, Ben Franklin and a few of the other bright minds of the time got together and they developed what's known as the statutory accounting principles. Statutory accounting principles. This is a unique, vast, intricate system of rules and regulations that insurance companies have to abide by or they don't keep a license. So it is a rare breed of corporations. And let me tell you how rare the breed is. How many corporations did you and I see just from 2000 go out of business? How about the biggest energy company? How about the biggest telecommunication company, WorldCom and Enron? How about the biggest accounting firm, Arthur Anderson? How about the oldest bank? Hmm. You know what I'm referring to? The oldest bank would be uh, Lehman? Lehman is one of them. Do you know the other? 130-year-old investment bank went out. Oh, oh! Um, give me a hint. I'm not going to give you a hint. <laughs> it's not Goldman Sachs. Goldman nope. Sachs was not doing good, though. It's um, Bear, Stearns. Bear Stearns. I had a friend that worked for him. Yeah. Now, okay. This is what's called interactive. Mm-hmm. When I talk, I'm interactive with anyone I talk to, so I'm going to keep you on your toes, so good. pay attention. I'm ready. <laughs> Got my coffee cold, but it's, it's going to go. <laughs> this is part of the ADHD ability that yeah. I have. Okay. <laughs> So when you have this type of ability, you have a lot more adrenaline that runs through your body. It's a chemical that motivates you. And ADHD people have this naturally, and it's naturally triggered through the conversation and stimulation of other people they're interested in talking to and subjects they like. You'll see them go into an ADHD mode like you're seeing here because it's what we care about. Mm-hmm. People who are ADHD will get more intensified of things they care about. So when you look at the insurance institutions, they operate under the statutory accounting principles, and that was started by Ben Franklin. Life insurance contracts were originally designed for the orphans and the widows to replace the provider. So they came out. If you want to know where the life insurance concept really began, Mm -hmm. back in the Roman days, before the soldier went onto that battlefield with his sword and his shield, all Roman soldiers 
threw a gold nugget into a big bowl. Huh. And those soldiers that didn't come off the field, that big bowl went to those families. Cool. It was the first form of life insurance. Now, it's progressed a lot since then. But there hasn't been a life insurance institution, Sam, since 1780 that ever went out of business. And there's been a few of them that went belly up, but no one's ever lost a penny of their principal. I've done the Google research. I can find people that lost some of their interest, but none of their principal. It's a crazy stat. Yep. Crazy so, and amazing. So when you look at that, people say, well, how's that possible? Like you said, how's that possible? Three things. Under the statutory accounting system, and there's many aspects, one of the aspects is an insurance, life insurance institution has to have three separate accounts, three firewalls. One is going to be called the legal reserve account. This is the consumer bucket. This is where 100% of the consumer's money that they're putting in any product with any insurance company, regardless of the rating, they have to reserve 100%. And it's not their investment portfolio. It's not used for an investment portfolio. It's used as a clad iron guarantee that there's your money, 100% of it. We're not going to leverage it 97% like a bank, and we're certainly not going to leverage it 100% like Wall Street. You put $100,000 in, we're going to side it and put it aside. And not only are these life insurance institutions going to put that money aside, but they owe something called premium tax. Premium tax is a self-insured, it's an industry self-insured association that insures that contract, no matter what state you're in, up to a dollar amount. So there's two safety nets we just talked about. One, they're not using your money for investment purposes. Mm -hmm. And two, they have to insure your money with a 2% premium tax on first year dollars only. Every product, long-term care, annuities, fixed annuities, indexed annuities, or even life insurance. They have to pay a 2% premium tax and it insures here in Pennsylvania, it's up to $300,000 for any one contract. Jersey, it's up to 500000 But keep in mind, that's a second safety net. The first safety net, they're not even using your money. They have to establish another account called the capital and surplus account. A capital surplus account is the firewall between their, their legal reserve account for the consumer. This is the second bucket, and it's the company's account. It's their money. And to be an insurance company, you better have about a billion dollars in that capital surplus account because you're not going to be using the legal reserve account. That capital surplus account, for every dollar a consumer gives to an insurance company and goes into that legal reserve account, the insurance company can go to their, like a savings account, their capital surplus account, and take a dollar out of their account and bring it and put it into the third account that's required. It's called an investment portfolio. There are the three accounts, legal reserve for the client, capital surplus is the insurance company's monies, and then you have their investment portfolio. Now, there is a few safety nets here. When they put their money into that investment portfolio, do you, people understand, do you know, that every dollar comes out of that capital reserve account and goes into that investment portfolio that represents what's in that legal reserve? So if there's $100 billion in a legal reserve account of people's money, there's going to be $100 billion in that investment portfolio because every dollar represents it. They're given guidelines on where mm -hmm. they can invest that dollar. Are you aware of that, Sam? I'm not aware, but I am now. And I'm okay. going to re-listen to this episode two or three times and take notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that investment account that they're, they have to give guidelines to 80% or thereabouts is required minimally to be in long-term investment bonds, which mean they're not gold-plated bonds. These are B++ or better. And B++ are better bonds have always proven to go through any market calamity, including depressions. 
They don't pull back 90% like it did in 29. They don't pull back 50 or 49% like it did the last two market crashes in America. They go down maybe 7 to 10%. Hmm. They're in investment-grade bonds. Now, there's 20% left over to that dollar if 80% has to be there. They can do no more than 6% with Wall Street's investments. Hmm. They're limited on a risk exposure. They can put no more than 6% of their investment portfolio in risk. No more than 4% in commercial real estate. It splits it up now. It splinters. No more than 1% in in policy loans. There are rules and regulations under the statutory accounting principles that are in place for all these accounts, and I'm just going over them briefly with you. Now, if you look at these safety nets, safety net one, there's no leveraging. 100% of your money is in a legal reserve account, and it's being monitored frequently. Offered oftenly, mm-hmm. regularly, it's being monitored by state examiners and auditors of where the companies are headquartered. This is a monitoring system that every state has. So every year, it's a field audit's done to every insurance institution in this country by the state in which it's headquartered. They sent out these auditors, and they're going through the paperwork to make sure that these companies are reserving 100% of the people's money. And it's not at risk. They're looking at the capital reserve account, making sure every dollar they put into that investment portfolio is following the statutory accounting rules that are set up since 1780. And this is just part of the reason why you don't see insurance companies going out of business when you see Hurricane Katrina or you see Hurricane Andrew. Mm -hmm. You don't see nationwide or state foreign closing their doors. But you sure as hell see General Motors after 75 years, a successful car country company. Hmm. You see them run into bankruptcy, tell nobody, fleece their bondholders, who were told, incidentally, their bonds were safe, fleece the preferred stock, and now the preferred stockholders found out the stock was preferred for that corporation, and their shareholders got wiped out. They go into bankruptcy. We bail them out. We, the people, the federal government, bail them out. And two years, Sam, after this bailout, they profit. General mm-hmm. Motors profits sure. after expenses, $11 billion, and they leave all their shareholders, preferred stockholders, bondholders, high and dry, holding an empty bag. And that came when they came in, these investors came in as believers. Because if you invest in a corporation and you put your hard earned money in like your mom and did, mom did with us, you believe in that person. You believe in that product. You're a believer, not just an investor when it's all you worked for. And to let the believers down and for the federal government to commit what I would call fraud, I think it shows us all. That what's legal on Wall Street is not moral for the everyday hardworking person in this country. And so when you look at the insurance companies and you see they're not leveraging anything, you see that all those three accounts that are going to be audited and examining by not just one or two people. I mean, each year, understand, these states, it's called the field audit, they send out eight to ten auditors and examiners, and these guys come out with their lunch in a brown bag in their briefcase, and they take up an office in the, in the court headquarters of these insurance companies, and they're there for eight weeks, and they're going through the papers, and boy, they're not there for a picnic either. Mm-hmm. They're there to come up with penalties and fines and make it worth their trip, and they, do they ever. If any life insurance institution gets out of a field order for more than $300,000, they did good. They're operating really well. So today... These insurance companies are so highly regulated. They are not leveraged. You don't see them going out of business, although they can, but they certainly don't go into bankruptcy because the whole concept of insurance, Sam, and this is the other safety net, safety net one, legal reserve account, Mm -hmm. safety net two, 
guarantee association every state has that guarantees contracts, whether it's long-term care, annuity contract, or life insurance contract, you're guaranteed by the state you live in. You just have to know your limit, but it's the second safety net. Guarantee association is very rarely used because (laughs) there's too many other safety nuts before it. Legal reserve, another safety net. Where they have to put the money and how they have to invest their investment portfolio, another safety net. Auditing, the field audits, eight examiners, eight uh, auditors, Mm -hmm. another safety net. And when you get down to it, you don't see insurance companies following bankruptcy because the latest and the greatest and the fifth safety net is the very insurance concept itself. Spread the risk. And that's what receivership does opposed to bankruptcy. When a corporation goes into bankruptcy on Wall Street, it's every shark for himself. Mm-hmm. And as the feeding is on the investors' investments, the feeding is on everything these investors work for, and they don't get their money back, all the sharks get to get it. That's called bankruptcy. It's not the corporation that goes into bankruptcy. That's a deceitful name. It's the everyday believer that gets killed and mm-hmm. massacred that goes into bankruptcy. Just talk to a lot of people that had... General Motor bonds or yeah. people who worked for GE for many years and got hammered and never GE never came back. These are the people that you're going to see in your Walmarts with blue aprons on in their 80s and the people you're going to see at Home Depot with the orange. And I feel bad for those folks. Mm-hmm. They earned it. They worked 100% for their money, Sam, but somebody else got to spend it. They were swiped. It's an illusion, Wall Street. And when you look at the fifth one, they spread the risk. So when one company in the event, since they get audited every year, and that's why you don't see many companies going out of business, they're walking a tight line with auditors and examiners in the states in which they're headquartered every year. They're monitored very closely. It's like an intensive care unit, financially speaking, of regulation on insurance companies. So it's very unusual for an insurance company to go out and go belly up. It has happened. And when it has happened, it's called receivership. Insurance institutions do not have bankruptcy on their menu. They have something called receivership. Every insurance company comes together in the particular industry of the one that went under to float that company's liability. So a good example of this, and it's on the, uh, it's on the case study. Mm-hmm. I dealt with a company called Pilgrim Life Insurance Company out of Falkroft, Pennsylvania. They were a company that was in business since 55, 54, family-owned company. And this company got into the long-term care business of nursing home contracts in the early 80s. And back then, there was no track record for underwriting these contracts. Remember, I was a door-to-door salesman selling these, and I was very successful. I had placed a lot of business of my practice with Pilgrim Life Insurance Company. Mm -hmm. And Pilgrim Life Insurance Company, after about... And 15 years got caught in an audit operating under the legal reserve amount. Mm-hmm. In other words, they were supposed to have X amount of dollars in that legal reserve account because they did X amount of business and they didn't have the same monies in there. In fact, it was $9 million less. Wow. This is what's known as an insolvent corporation, insolvent insurance company. The state auditors caught it. Of course they caught it. Like I said, it's it's an intensive care unit of a watch, regulatory-wise, on these companies. So they got caught. And what was happening was they were getting hit with an extraordinary amount of claims. They had an age block of business 15 years later. They didn't do the underwriting right when they were accepting all these long-term care applications. And now it's 10, 15 years later, and people in their 80s tend to use these products. Mm -hmm. And they were getting 
overwhelmed. They were collecting about $2 million in premium and paying out $3 million in claims. So they were running every quarter behind about a million dollars. And when 12 months went by, they were underwater. And when the uh, liquidation department or the auditors find you in that condition, they only give you a time frame. I don't know what it is. I think it's 90 days or so to raise the money, sell stock, get investors, but you need to get that legal reserve up or we're going to close your company down and we're going to piece it out to other insurance companies and break it up or we're going to run it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So Pilgrim couldn't raise the money. They put the block of business up for bid. Who wants to make an acquisition? No insurance company on the market wanted to touch the business, Sam, because they all knew it was an age block of business. They were buying a loser. They were buying a block of business that if they didn't market something else to these people, it was a losing proposition since they were in the hole with claims and not enough premiums coming in. Well, what are you going to sell people in their 80s back in 1988, 89? The life insurance is not the same. It was cheaper today. You would be able to do it, but not back then. So no one wanted to inherit the business. Mm -hmm. So what did the state do? And this is the process in every state. The fact that they couldn't make any mergers or acquisitions, the state liquidation department comes in now, another division of this process of the statutory accounting system. They fire all the staff that are currently at this insurance company and they keep what's called a skeleton staff and they continue to pay claims and collect premiums. And then what they do is everybody, meaning every insurance interest in the uh, every insurance company that marketed long-term care in Pennsylvania, whether they were headquarters there or not, it didn't matter. If you're a licensed insurance institution and you market long-term care in the state of Pennsylvania, you got a piece of that deficit that was not being covered by Pilgrim. So that's receivership. All those companies had to come together that, that was in that particular industry, marketing those particular contracts, and they had to pay a piece of that long-term care bill that Pilgrim was not able to meet their obligation. Mm. That's called receivership. That's called keeping the, comp, keeping the guaranteed renewable contracts in place. And that's why today it's called guaranteed renewable. That's why the only institution that can issue a guaranteed renewable contract is going to be a life insurance institution because of the watchdog system that we are now talking about. Mm. And today... I still have clients being paid. Come on, look how many years. I can't believe the lady's 100. But I still have clients being paid, and that company never defaulted on any payments because everyone got a piece of that bill. And you know how what piece they get? If you're a long-term care insurance company like American Equity or Equitrust, and let's say nine, uh, 35% of your business is coming off the annuities or, or coming off long-term care insurance, and 35% of your business profile is a model is long-term care, then you got 35% of that bill. Mm. Whatever your percentage of your of the industry that that company went in that you're in, they all shared equally if there's two companies that have 35%. So there's a formula here. But the point I'm making is there are so many safety nets under this statutory accounting principle. And doesn't that equate to why you don't see any insurance companies going out of business with the last two market crashes? Mm -hmm. None went out of business in 1929. They, they didn't even get closed up in 1929. But you will see that again in the next market catastrophe. You will see insurance companies come through with flying colors. Now, there are those. I just want to give you a disclaimer that mm -hmm. claim AIG. Mm -hmm. AIG is the parent company over a bank called AIG that went into bankruptcy, not AIG, the life insurance institution. If you look at their legal reserve account, 
their life insurance institution in AIG, the bank is gone, but their life insurance institute, like 850 other banks that went into bankruptcy after 08. Right. But AIG, the life insurance institution, if you look at their legal reserve account, has over a trillion dollars in it. And that represents every commitment and liability they have out there to the insurers, the contract holder. And I can't say investors, because if you invest in stock, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. So if you have stock of AIG and not a product of AIG, two different things. Hmm. And I want to say one other thing because it's important. It's important because it's always a misconception. People look at these insurance ratings and say, oh, you have long-term care with that insurance company and they're rated a C? Yeah, that's not good. That is false. Ratings mean nothing to the product that's with that company. Every single insurance company in the country is completely equal. Mm-hmm in terms of safety because they all have to follow the statutory accounting system and because of receivership. Yeah, interesting your point. Pro- your product is not as strong as the company holding it. It's as strong as the whole industry that stands behind it that has never filed bankruptcy since 1780, its inception. Hmm. Now, that is a fact, and that's what people have to understand about this industry. And when you take a look at it and you understand it, you understand where do you want to be. When you look at these, now that you have a foundation of where these fixed indexed annuities come from, now that you understand receivership is not bankruptcy, receivership is what the Romans came up with in that big bowl with the nuggets. <laughs> now that you understand <laughs> that Nationwide didn't go out of business along with State Farm and Allstate in South Florida with all those hurricanes because everybody's homeowner's policy went up around the country, they spread the risk. That is the insurance concept. It's the three musketeers, Sam. It's one for all and all for one, and that's what our country needs right now. We are being divided, but won't, won't be divided will be our industry. And there is where you must understand where everyone falls short as advisors in my industry. They don't know the safety of the product they're selling. They don't know the safety of the industry they're in. Everyone says, oh, your product is just as good as the company that can, can pay its claims. That is a false statement. It's Mm -hmm. very, very simple to understand that uh, when you're with an insurance company, you are as strong as the industry it is in, and history has proven that. So with that being said, when you see the ratings of a C and that insurance company goes out of business, it didn't affect your product. Mm. You know, Pilgrim is out of business. Pilgrim, for all purposes, is insolvent, but their premiums are still being collected and their claims are still being paid. So it didn't matter whether they were in A, B, C, or, or, or not a company today at all. No one's lost. And that's the point people have to understand. And that's the very thing Wall Street fears. They fear these indexed annuities, Sam. They're against these indexed annuities, Sam. And so is the federal government. And they're trying to pass legislation that takes our ability away to offer them. You now have to have a security license, and that's what they're trying to do, mm. so that they will control and paragraph these vehicles. And now, what do you think they're going to do if they win that fight? These vehicles will not be offered to greater America. You'll have to go through a broker-dealer if you have a license, and the broker-dealer is going to be told what is going to be on their menu of sales. So when you think of ratings, ratings only affect the shareholder. So if I want to invest in Allianz and they're an A-plus company, I'm going to pay a premium for their shares. Now, if I buy Allianz shares and it goes down to a B, I lost market shares. Mm -hmm. But you didn't lose your product. Allianz goes out of business. I lost everything in those shares. But I didn't lose my product. So the ratings is another illusion. Mm -hmm. Our industry is so misrepresented by media. 
I get mad. I get angry. I mean, I really do. And you can hear it in my voice now as I explain it to me. And that's why I'm so passionate. Because to me, there's no better industry. Mm-hmm. And what your mom and dad, the steps that they have taken, can I tell you, they love you, Sam. They want a legacy for their child. They want a legacy because the moments, and you might not get this at your age, and maybe you will, but the moments your mom and dad went through life together and earned their their little nest egg, and I'm not saying it's little. They did pretty good for their lifetime. <laughs> I, bet, I bet their mom and dad would be real proud of them. Uh, they did what a lot of people want to do. So, And what your mom and dad did during their work year, Sam, they took the moments of their time, the moments of their time where they were bringing up their children to go out and work, and the moments of their time they, they, they translate, they convert it into a monetary value called that nest egg they have today. Mm-hmm. That is moments of their time. And I tell people, do not throw your history away with Wall Street. Wall Street can affect what you've worked for in the past, which is the moments of your time, and they can certainly affect your present, mm-hmm. and it will affect your future this coming crash. So you don't know how important it is that if we get to do a series with you, I'm all for it. It's not about the money. It's about the worth. It's not about where you are. It's going to mm-hmm. be about who you are and how you are. And that's what it is for me at 63. And I wish I thought this way at a much younger age. I wish I realized that when you try to hold on to things in life, it's a closed hand. Mm -hmm. But when you open your hand up to give, it's also open to get. And when you give, you receive. And when you take, you just get. And you go back to the apple tree. If I come across an apple tree, Sam, and I'm like 98% of this population, and I just pick the apple and eat it, and I didn't grow it, and I didn't plant it, well, then I got what I took. Mm-hmm. But if I come across the apple tree, Phil Canella, I've learned now, and I try to pass it on like I'm doing with you, I want to plant the seed because I just don't want the apple. I want an orchard, and that comes from nurturing. And that's what you're doing with your, with your followers here. Mm-hmm. You're trying to nurture them, and at the same time, if you can turn a profit, as you call the hobby, it then becomes more than just a profit to you, Sam. It becomes a purpose. So in the insurance industry in which I started believing in, it circled back to me at 53, and it, and it I had revelations. I looked back at why I was so successful. I couldn't understand why was I making six, $700,000 a year, and my no one can do what I can do. I try to train all my friends. I took them all out, and I made it look so easy. I just didn't know how good I was until time went by. It's kind of like looking at a picture of yourself today and wait 20 years and then see how handsome you are. So today. handsome. <laughs> yeah. See, and I, I, try to, I try to pass that philosophy on at the program, but I don't go into it deep. Mm-hmm. But that's what I did. I kept coming back through my past and I started learning why I was successful. And I wish I learned that all I had to do was what was always said to me to do. All I had to do was what I was told to do. It's simple. Be yourself. Do what's right. Plant the seed of righteousness, and you will bear the fruit of righteousness. And I don't mean to sound political. I mean politic. 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 I don't mean to sound righteous, but I mean to say that's how it works. And again, Einstein taught me so much with that one phrase: "Look at nature." And when I went to a five-star restaurant, and that concierge started telling me about the grapes because he was from France and what the difference is. Because I asked that question, what's the big deal about France wine? Well, this guy went into that life thing like I did with you. Mm-hmm. And his point was to tell me that's why the grapes are better. But I looked at it from a philosophical view, like, well, a plant's a life. A plant wants to survive like we all do. And so the only thing the plant has is that trait called survival, which would be called will. 
Now, we've taken the survival trait away from our millennials. Mm -hmm. And that that survival trait has been taken away from you and I and your parents because I wouldn't have had a farm. That's a survival trait, buddy. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had a farm if there was no supermarkets. I don't know. I'd be living on hay and grass, I guess. (laughs) But (laughs) So we've taken a step farther with these millennials. Not all millennials, but I would say the majority of them, you know. I would say 80, 90% of them. We've taken their ability away, and it's our fault. It really, in a real sense of the word, it's not the millennials' fault. It's our fault. Look what we've done to the economy. There's no way out now. Look at how soft we made them. We have set these kids up for the worst life they can have. Mm-hmm. Look what they've seen on the computer. It's all about the bling. It's all about the material things. It's all how soft it's been for them. Everyone's a movie star. Everyone can put their thoughts on, on and feel like they're somebody with social media. I mean, and then they get into the real world and they get crushed like a grape that they really are and don't realize you're not a rock. Mm-hmm. You're a grape and you're going to get stepped on and the juices are going to flow out of your eyes. You're going to cry. You're going to feel inadequate. And you look at these kids killing themselves today. You look at what they're exposed to today. And so this all ties in. This all ties in to the economy because the economy is made up of it being consumed, consumers and consumption. It's 70%. And when the consumers go away, economies go away, and the quality of life diminishes. And that's what we're seeing happening. And it's a cycle. It's a cycle. It's, what, it's how it works. So, Phil, this has been super, super educational. I can't wait to listen to this again and take a few, a few notes and apply oh, it man. to... Uh, I, was just, I thought that was the warm-up. Nah. I thought you support <laughs> Man, there's, there's been so, so many questions about... You know, we could go on and on forever. I could sit here and, and uh, I almost want to fly down to South Florida and just continue this on for a longer period of time. But we'll, we'll definitely have to have you back on you know, a future episode to do a more detailed analysis of, of the crash-proof system. But I do have a couple just kind of closing questions uh, regarding the education because... Just this alone has been super educational. I've had the privilege of seeing you put on a seminar before. Again, same thing. Just went away with so much new wisdom and knowledge. And I know you guys at Crashproof focus a lot on the educational process for your customers and your clients. Well, what do you think the educational process is really made up of? It's not made up of what we want to present so we can sell something. Mm -hmm. And therefore, as someone that's highly skeptical... Someone that's been highly taken advantage of because I'm a good guy, I'm very compassionate, I'm very understanding, and those type of people get taken advantage of. And I'm not prejudiced. So it's happening to me over and over and over again. It's like Groundhog Day. It's a different person, but it's the same story. Get what you can take, get what you can take. And that's happened my whole career. But what I've learned from that, I've learned not to give up in trusting in people. I've learned not to look at everyone because most people have taken advantage of my kind hand being opened. But the, 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 the most important, important thing that anyone can realize is uh, along the question that, that you're asking, the reason for crash-proof retirement and the reason we do what we do is, again, if you – it's just I'm saying it 20 different ways. Nourish life and life nourishes you. What's your question? Just the – 
educational process that people will come if they come to crash proof what what does that look like it's a few days of of a background kind of on the things that we're talking about and then how these products or rather the system the crash proof system can be tailored to each individual yes all the above what we try to do uh throughout our whole education process and it starts with the commercials it starts with the radio show it starts with the mailer and we do a three-prong approach with those three media outlets television radio shows radio commercials several different stations in the area are advertising, radio shows in the area in which we operate. Mailers are very important uh, with the bullet points and faces of who are going to be giving the program. I think that's all psychological. It's all very important. And what we do at the programs once we get them there is we don't just talk out our mouths and show charts. We give interviews, and the interviews we show, as you know, they're exclusive interviews. These are interviews that uh, networks should be showing. These are high quality interviews, people who are in the know, insiders, the brightest minds. And we expose what's going on. We're exposing what the other media companies don't want you to know because they're controlling what you see, hear, and read. And they're surviving with Wall Street. You can buy stocks in the six major media companies. They don't want you to know what we're showing you. So that's, that's, that is, uh, that is very important to, to understand. That's, that's one reason. So we document. And throughout the whole education process, what we document at the programs, Sam, when you come to your first visit, and it's typically three to five visits, it's an education process. There is no selling. I've terminated 33 guys in 2010 and 11 for, for exactly that reason, mm-hmm. for selling. You don't ask a client, why, why aren't you going to do it? You don't ask a client, you know you need it. What are you going to do? That's called pressure. You are a teacher. And the way we set this up as a consumer advocacy firm is that you're teaching. I have all my client rooms because people come here. I have them all monitored with video and audio. And when people come to my front desk, they're told you're going to be monitored and videoed. And it's for your protection and consumer advocacy because we deal with independent educators. And if you don't want to be for your protection, we'll shut the camera off. And if you do, just sign our disclaimer. We have everyone sign in and no one objects to that. They all like the idea that they have someone watching over them. Mm -hmm. Now, when people sit on that first visit, we're not teaching with what we want to say and leading them on a teaching map that draws them to our contracts. We are consumer advocates. We document everything we say. So when people come in, the first thing we're going to show them is the Wharton School of Business study. That's their homework. It's a two-year in-depth study on these magical vehicles that are incredible. So why would I be the one to tell someone, you can have 100% of your money working 100% of the time, no fees, outperform the market every year, and you can have a tax-free income, and oh, by the way, it avoids probate, and by the way, it does a lot of other things. Now, if I comes out of my mouth, they're not believing that. In fact, it sounds all too good to be true. They're heading out the door as quickly as they can to get away from me. But if you read it in Wharton and you go through their study, which is very technical, and then you go through their PowerPoint, which is very easy to understand, that is going to educate you. And the sound education will give you a sound retirement. So I try to show people through this system, which is com- compliant driven, that the education is in the documentation, not in the words coming out of our educator. You need to do homework. It's interactive. If you don't do your homework, when you come back, we're going to back test you. We're going to want to know what you know, what you don't know. And if you don't know the right things, it's going to go to another visit until you do. But it's not going to be us teaching you. It's going to be you doing your homework. It's interactive. So the first visit is all about uh, documenting 
what an annuity is, giving them the definition of it from Webster, giving them the Wharton study. So this is like legitimate resources yeah. we're giving them, right? It's giving them the American equity chart, showing them that they're, they're a chart that's state approved how these vehicles work. It's giving them the Guarantee Association generically how all states have it. Now, read up on the safety, read up on these vehicles. If you choose to come back, you can call us, or if you know you want to come back, I'm going to take you to the reception desk and you'll make another appointment or let them know to follow up. It's up to you. We're here to answer questions and we're here to educate you. And a lot of these people haven't, haven't had any homework in 30 or 40 years, so it must be an interesting process. Well, the homework is very easy. It's, it's a 10-page reading and I tell them, and I've highlighted some of the Wharton study that I want them to focus on. Mm-hmm. And I tell them the things you don't understand on their line, come back and we'll explain it to you. Well, why won't you explain it to us now, Mr. Canella? And I said, because the teacher don't explain the homework until the, you do the homework. When you come back, I'll explain what you don't understand like a teacher. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I'm giving you a free service, I say to people. I'm giving you a free service. It's a benefit of being a consumer advocate and you're benefiting from it. But you have to follow the rules. And if you don't want to follow the rules, it means you don't qualify for the free service. So if you want me to come out to your house because the office is 35 minutes and you worked 40 years, you can't take a 35-minute ride after 40 years of work, you don't qualify for the free service. It's a, we're not out to sell people. Mm-hmm. I want to draw the ones in that are flapping in the high seas of risk, drowning and saying, where can I go? Where can I go? They're the ones I want to come through my process. We're going to be the most productive with them. They're going to be the most thankful. And I have a happy practice for it today. Now, the second visit, very interesting. We really drilled down. We drilled down on all their uh, goals. I, I formulated a what I call a fact-finding MRI. It is a profile of the client's goals, and it's very detailed. And I Skype in my head engineer analyst to the appointments in Florida. Since he's not down there, he's up here. So we have Skyping, Skyping ability, mm-hmm. and we just implemented this two weeks ago. So I don't think mom and dad went through the Skyping part, but they did get to talk to our engineer. But I figured it's better seeing and talking to him, and he now... Ross Phillips is introduced at the second visit when all the forms are filled out. Those forms are a deep, detailed metadata of the goal profile. And Ross is there to say that when I get the forms, I'm going to give you folks a call and I'm going to make sure everything's accurate before I put my team of six people on a 40-hour collectively to build this system for you. I will call you. After I review that, you'll get a second call, and it might be right after or it might be a few days later, but that second call is going to tell you whether we can do the goals that you're asking for because we're not going to want to waste your time. If we can't do your goals, we're going to be up front and say we're not the firm for you. And I turn away about hmm, 3 or 4% of the people that come and see us. They just simply don't have enough funds, and we're not going to take their last $100,000. That's mm-hmm. not the way to do business. So after that second visit, there's oversight from our head analyst. He actually touches the client twice because in between the second visit and the next time they come back, he's building a a plan that's custom to their income needs or not their income needs, or maybe they need income later. We're customizing it. And our plan is very intricate because it covers long-term care in several different ways. Uh, And you don't need annual premiums to have that covered. So we have different ways of covering it. We also have another piece that shows tax-free legacy for if that's interesting to people how to take your required minimum distributions and rather than just put them on the market at risk and in a bank and not making money, we show people who don't need to use those required minimum distributions how to leverage them in the paying off taxes due on the estate on these IRAs or on, on any, any inheritance states or anything like that. So our system is very complete. Uh, so at the end of the second visit, it's a 40-hour thing, and 
if we can reach their goals, and I'm going to say nine times out of 10, we can reach people's goals. Sometimes people come in and they're unrealistic, 300000 and I need 40000 a year. Well, mm-hmm. you're going to be out of business in four years. We can't help you if that's the way your spending pattern is. Uh, so that kind of stuff happens sometimes. But typically, uh, we get 10 people come through our system because they're being touched, because we're putting a system together, because it's been documented with the education that they did. I'm forcing them to research and I'm giving them the, 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 the proper research tools. I'm giving them the Wharton study. I'm giving them the, the Webster Dictionary. I'm giving them statements and, and, and go on YouTube and view 250 interviews of people that have a crash proof system. I think I'm the only country, I'm the only uh, company in the country that has 200 interviews that are not scripted or, or <laughs> actors. I mean, I think that's pretty impressive. And, and they all have something in common when you listen to all these testimonials. It's all an education, they tell you. No one asked us to do it. So at the end, we produce, we produce an intricate blueprint. It is a money map of your goals. It is actual blueprint, and it's that detailed. And I also detect that. Look at your parents, what we put together for them. I also detected six pages that break down what that crash-proof system specifically is going to do for that particular couple or individual. And then it's on my letterhead, those words, and I get the CEO, Joanne Small, to sign off on it, and the head analyst to sign off on that six-page letter of understanding of their crash-proof retirement guide, and they're both licensed with a fiduciary duty. And where I come in at, Sam, Mm -hmm. I'm the agent of record. So you have the chef, the executives, all on the line for what they're telling people with our licenses because we don't use any smoke screens like some of these uh, financial organizations using agents to go out and here's a high commission product, go get them boys. Yes. And then the, those guys get in trouble and the financial firms are making the money, the FMOs and, and the poor guys are out yeah. there doing something illegal. So our system is t- typically three to five. There's nothing easy to explain because this is a 41 year career mm-hmm. that has been tweaked into a consumer driven system. And I can tell you this, I come from a strong Catholic background. Today, I'm very spiritual. I don't have a religion because I think religion is the harness over spirituality. I think if you're a believer, you're a good person. But as a kid, I always wanted to be an altar boy. And because I went to public school, the Catholic churches would only pick the altar boys from the, from the school they went to, the Catholic school. So I couldn't be the altar boy. I always wanted to be a priest, as corny as that sounds. And I think that's an Italian thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of Italian guys always wanted to be priests because we were always heavily into the Christian Catholic religion. Mm-hmm. And that was up until I was about 16. I went away to the monastery, and I had a bad experience, and it chased me away. <laughs> so I never went back, right? So here it is, years later, and everything I wanted to be, man, it circled back because I never gave up. Mm-hmm. I mean, now I'm a preacher in the financial industry, and now I'm a motivator. Uh, a coach. I'm very successful. I have purpose that gives me worth, and it's a side of my ego that hasn't been stroked. I mean, you have uh, an ego for money. Yeah, that's great. You have an ego for looks. Oh, okay. That's great. But when your ego gets stroked from getting worth and helping people like your mom and dad and people hugging us after the crash of our weight, kissing us and calling us financial angels, and mm-hmm. God sent you to us, I can't tell you I've never felt anything I was a football star. I was a Marine officer. I felt a lot of pride. I felt a lot of glory running the ball as a football star, coming in first in the country out of 400 kids. That was like my biggest glory feeling. But I never felt what I feel today. Having something you love doing, preaching, motivating, inspiring, and Mm -hmm. helping the older generation keep what they've earned and then being recognized for it 
And then on top of that, do you know how guilty I feel making the money I make? Because I enjoy so much what I do. I feel so blessed. And I appreciate you letting me get that out because I, I enjoy sharing that with people I care about. It's been great, Phil. Uh, we'll definitely leave a link to, I know you have some great testimonials for Crash Proof and the system. And a lot of the people that actually went, you know, were with Crash, Crash Proof through the 08 crash. Uh, so we'll definitely need to leave a link to that. And I know on that, there's a lot of written testimonials from people that have just watched the videos and are part of the Crash Proof system. Uh, just one final question, Phil, before we wrap up. Just in general, I know this can get really, really deep, but who would be kind of your typical audience. We have listeners out there from age 17 all the way up to 70 looking for better ways to protect their money, better ways to manage their wealth. And then you have someone like me that's maybe the the median or the average listener, kind of mid-30s, looking for better things to do with their money. And a lot of times we have people that are entrepreneurs. Inevitably, what they're doing is high risk in nature, and they're just looking for ways to protect their money. Uh, They don't need to get rich off off the the interest or the growth, but they're looking for smart ways to protect it. Who would the crash-proof system typically be good for? And Is it someone like me would typically kind of get turned away, or is there a system that would be appropriate for myself as well as older, older people? So there's two ways to approach this. One, crash-proof retirement system is not just a financial plan. It is a philosophy of principles. It is the philosophy of righteousness. It is the philosophy of doing what's right. Those ingredients will make anyone successful. Those same ingredients you apply to the financial industry and your investments. You had to go through life. You had to have falls before you crawl, and you had to have falls before you walked, and you had to walk before you ran. So that's the same ingredients. In investing, you have to educate yourself, and that's your way of crawling. That's your way of walking. Before you put your money anywhere, you better get educated. And as far as our system, our system really suits those who are 50 and up that have non-retirement money. You know as well as I know, Sam, if you're having non-retirement money or non-qualified money and you put it in one of these vehicles, you're going to have a penalty if you take it out prior to 59 and a half Mm -hmm. because it's going to grow tax deferred. It's one of the few vehicles and only insurance instruments get that benefit, that special tax status from IRS. You grow to tax deferred, tax deferred with no reporting of the interest as long as you leave it in these vehicles, even though it's not a retirement account. That is fantastic. You will get 30% more growth, but there's a trade-off. If you pull that money back out, just like you would a 401k or an IRA and you're under 59 and a half, you're going to get a 10% penalty from IRS because they let you grow tax deferred. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to who our demographics are for crash-proof retirement, number one, the first approach, our demographics are for everyone from one to 99. It's all about doing the right thing. It's all about learning how to go through struggle and then you get to the top. It's no fun playing king in a hill by yourself, but it's a hell of a lot of fun when you have 100 guys running up the hill and you've learned how to make it to the top among the 100. Now, you're not going to do it the first time, and you may not do it the 100th time, but you will do it if you're determined and you make adjustments after your mistakes. So what they taught us in the Marines, and this is the way it works in investment, if you're in investing or you're in a situation and it's not going the way you want to go, you don't do the same thing over and over again. That's, the, as we all know, the definition of being insane. You make a mistake, you adapt, you adjust, and then you overcome. But you got to keep adapting and, over, and making those adjustments. Now, as far as uh, people who are 
17 older and they're going to start an IRA account, an individual retirement account, this is the perfect system for them because a 10% penalty rule from IRS is not going to affect you. It's the same rule that IRAs are going to assess on you. So it doesn't matter. The only thing that does matter is if you're going to put money in an IRA, you want to put it in an IRA at your age at 17 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, you want it in an account that's going to outperform mutual funds, it's going to perform the S&P, and there's not going to be any fees. And there's going to be certainties and guarantees, which mean you're going to have a certain guaranteed future because you were in the right vehicle. And they would be called fixed indexed annuities for any age, for any retirement account. Now, as far as that being said, it's not about pushing somebody into a product. If you want to go to the next level, if you want to have a system, why wouldn't you make, it's kind of like having one brick, why wouldn't you take bricks and give yourself a brick house for your money to reside in for the rest of its time because you want your money in a brick house. You don't want it in a sand house. You want it in a brick house so it outlives you. You want your brick house standing way after you leave. In fact, you want that brick house of your finances to stand for many years after you're gone for your legacy. Why would people keep their money in the securities? Why would they build a sand castle at the beach when they can have the castle on the rocks? These fixed indexed annuities have outperformed the market. Wharton School of Business has proved that in their study. They say not just one year, every year. And this study was made up, Sam, of six PhD economists and two senior actuaries from Wharton. And the study was over a two-year period. And the important thing to remember for people who are going to rush out and buy a fixed indexed annuity, only 3% of all 5,000 of these contracts that are offered by multitudes of insurance companies, only 3% of them, Sam, are client driven. Mm-hmm. Only 3% are client driven. Beware. But saying that, all fixed indexed annuities do not go down with the market. They all have minimum guarantees. So you really can't go wrong with any of them, but you can do so much better with the right ones for you. And every fixed indexed annuity, believe it or not, has a design purpose. And if you use any instrument, a vehicle, uh, excuse me, a surgeon tool, a musical instrument, or any fixed index annuity instrument, if you use it for its design purpose, you will get a better result. And every fixed index annuity has a design purpose, and that's why we have a system that's called the Craftsproof Retirement System. It's made up of all the little differences they have into a customized system. So hopefully you got a good answer. Everyone's our demographic that cares about their money. Phil, you're the man. Thank you for your military service and your great work as a consumer advocate. We definitely appreciate you coming on and sharing your philosophy and insight and giving us an intro to Crash Proof System. We're going to leave a lot of links in the show notes. I'll circle back around with Mike and make sure all the content is good. As much as we can share, we'd love to. This has been super educational. So thanks again. Yeah, same here. One other question for you, Sam. Mm. Um, I would love to have the opportunity, if you so choose, uh, to do something uh, with some of the links we have, unless you're a little bit sketchy on letting them hear Kramer, letting them hear Cots, letting them hear some of the other ones. So if you want to do that, I have no problem sharing with the public. We would absolutely love to include those. I think they're super interesting. And like I said, I think they should almost be a mandatory requirement for every person before they start their, their financial career or financial uh, interests yeah. in the world. Say, so. say because, yeah. you know, you, you did ask that question. The third approach is very simple. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I feel what you've heard today We are also advocates of advisors. We are also advocates of anyone in the insurance industry. So I enjoy talking about the safety in the industry so other people who are in my industry could understand there are lots of weapons and there's a suit of armor out there and it's called knowledge. And knowledge is power, but it becomes powerful if you know how to apply it. 
So once you learn how safe this industry really is called the Life Insurance Institution, and once you really know the ins and outs of these fixed index annuities, you are so better armed than all your competitors and just a little bit of IRA technicalities, you'll have no competition. Knowledge is power. We'll leave it at that. Thanks again, Phil. You're the man. Have a good afternoon. Wow, that was a interesting episode, Sam. Dude, that was amazing. I've actually listened to this episode twice already. And I think on the level of the Paul Merriman episode, to me, this is what this podcast is becoming about. There's, I mean, every episode's got value bombs, but to get someone on that's been doing it for four plus decades and can come on and share their wealth of experience and all their knowledge and all their just kind of, like you said, pro-life help. I mean, I can just sit there and be a student. I think it's great. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, obviously this is going to be Phil's point of view, uh, and, you know, his, his idea, his ideas, which I don't know if I necessarily believe in like 100% of it. Like, I don't know if, um, America is going to be the next Japan, uh, uh, economically, you know, or not, but I love hearing smart people who are successful give their opinions. So then I can weigh that into, you know, my own kind of philosophy and figure out what I want to do with my investments. Definitely. And just like the Harry Dent episode, I mean, people are going to be on one side of the fence or the other, or maybe kind of indifferent like you and I are. I think after the Harry Dent episode, we just, we said, what do we think the chances of this happening are? And both of us were kind of like, uh, you know, 40 to 60%. And, but I think the important thing with this is when you, when you, when you start studying the economy, markets, trends, and take a historical viewpoint, if nothing else, you're just arming yourself with with knowledge and knowledge is power. Just like Phil said, and kind of how we wrapped up the episode, knowledge is power. You don't have to make massive adjustments in what you're doing, but you need to arm yourself with this information and learn how to look for different signs, both up and down swings. Yeah, definitely. So I really like Phil's approach to, to kind of sales and marketing where he does more of an educational uh, approach. And because I think annuities is one of those things that has such a Maybe not annuities itself, but like insurance has such a, a negative connotation to it because there are so many different types. And I, I agree 100% where if the product was something like a variable interest rate annuity where it could be worth, you know, uh, X amount when the economy is doing well and then, and then zero when the economy is doing bad or poorly, that's something I would not, uh, you know, recommend to anybody. But you know, the more I look into it, something like a fixed rate annuity really is a good vehicle for a lot of people, uh, including someone who is in your situation, Sam. Definitely. And this is the crazy thing. We know about my story with UBS, how for the last, I had account for them since 2013. And over the next three years, when the markets are up 25% on average, the major indexes, my account was negative. Or flat, but it basically means I lost money because I was paying tax on the, the fixed income element or the earned income element, but the capital gains, I had losses. So what, what actually outperformed them was my 3% fixed rate annuities that were between three and five years. I'm getting 3% on those. So my, my boring old fixed rate 3% interest a year beat my professionally managed account. And I have zero to worry about, right? And I think it was really interesting, which ties into this episode strongly, was I have heard it from several different sources that life insurance companies are much safer and more sound than banks. But I had no idea why that was. And then we just, you know, we went into, I think, at least three different reasons on this this past episode, which is pretty, pretty crazy hearing historically that no life insurance companies have ever gone bankrupt is amazing. 
Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. So the things I don't like about life insurance products in general is, uh, number one, they are complicated. There's all these, mm-hmm. you know, terms, all these conditions. And actually, I don't think I've ever mentioned this, but when I was 15, my sister worked for a life insurance company and she got me to invest. And I remember going in with my parents and they explained to us, you know, these charts where if we invest this much every year, um, you know, over by the time we retire, we're, we're going to have a million dollars. And I thought that was amazing. So I started investing, you know, part of my, my paycheck from the ice cream store I was working at <laughs> into yeah. this annuity. And unfortunately, what, what happened in my situation, uh, is, you know, I, first off, I, I didn't see, really see the big picture. I wasn't thinking about retirement. I was going through, you know, high school and then college and I wanted that money for other things. You know, I wanted uh-huh. them. So I stopped putting money in, number one. But, uh, but then I decided, I was like, you know what? I have all this money, you know, it wasn't even a ton. It was probably like $8,000 at that time, but I had all this money that was, you know, in this fund that I needed for, for college, uh, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother topic, which, which I probably regret going to and spend the money on. But it's, then I had to do an early withdrawal. And then there's all these, you know, then there was all Ooh. these complications with, with getting the money out. So for me personally, I didn't have enough of an education on if that's something I should have been investing in in the first place and if that was the best thing for me. Um, I didn't like that because it was just way too complicated. So I, so I do like Phil's kind of educational approach and I think it's almost needed nowadays. Man, I, I, we've been, what, we're 44 episodes into this, Johnny, and I've been friends with you for a good three years and I still didn't know that about you. Thanks, for, <laughs> thanks, thanks for, uh, for bringing that out. But yeah, on your point, I mean, I've, Dude, I, I've been – so many people have tried to sell me life insurance and I, I, I really don't think that – one thing Phil said is that every single product has a design. And if you use it for its, in, its design purpose, you get a much better result out of it. And I think a lot of this life insurance that people are trying to sell you and I – and a, a lot of times it's like, it's like your sister. I have so many friends – right out of college that started selling life insurance, right? And what they're probably trying to sell me is probably not right for me, right? But but there are products out there, depending on what you're what you want to use it for, it is right. And so the way that I know there's a lot of questions that listeners are having right now about life insurance. And there's probably some people out there saying, well, we didn't even really get deep into life insurance. Phil's already agreed to come on in a, a few months down the road and do a deep dive into life insurance and how these products work. Um, because like you said, Johnny, these things, they are complicated. But I know at least for my parents, the way that they structured it is they say, okay, what are your needs? You know, both my parents are basically retiring. They don't have a, a huge nest egg, but they have enough to, you know, to live, you know, live on the rest of their life if, if they're careful with it. And what they, it, it's all designed for the need. So instead of putting, let's, let's just say it's a hundred thousand dollars. Instead of putting a hundred thousand dollars into one annuity that might just pay, let's say 2.8% yearly for the next six years. They'll say, what are your needs? Do you need, how much do you need to live on each month? Okay. We need five, $5,000 a month to live on. And we need this, to, this chunk of money to last, you know, 12 years. You transfer the risk to them. And then they, they basically take an assortment or kind of a web of annuities to meet your goals. So you might put in of that hundred thousand dollar, uh, example, you might put in 15 to one, 10 into another, eight into another, 10 into another. And so that, each of them are kind of spinning off different monthly dividends or, or distributions. And so the, the latter it so that it, it fits your needs and gets you to where you want to be. 
So why why are these different? Are some of them like three year annuities and some ten year and some thirty year annuities, or how does that work? Honestly, I I can't speak real in deep about the actual products. I would love to have Phil back on in the future to kind of do some real world examples. But I I do know with with the annuities that I bought through Stan the Annuity Man, that's exactly what it is. I have. I put chunks into right now, I think I have six different annuities and they're laddered so that every year money's coming due. They all pay a different interest rate. Some of them are fixed interest and some of them are market linked to the market. So last year, actually the ones linked to the market did quite well. They outperformed my, my, uh, I think two and a half or 3% fixed annuities. But in markets, in years that the market's down, like the year before it was flat. I didn't lose any money, but I didn't make any money. Okay. That definitely makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. And so I think sure. just kind of from, from my opinion, I think the two people, the two type of people that would really benefit from you know, looking into something like a fixed rate annuity, uh, would be either someone who has sold a business and has a lot of money sitting in the bank, you know, and, and you don't want to have all of your money in something more volatile, like even index funds, you know, so mm-hmm. someone in like Sam's position, you've, you've sold a business, you have a, you know, big nest egg. I definitely think it'd be a good idea to have part part of your money in something like a fixed rate annuity where it's guaranteed, mm-hmm. uh, both you know, both of the up and down. And I think for this, the other type of person is someone who is either very close to retiring or already retired, and you cannot afford to wait out, you know, three, five, ten, yeah. you know, twenty years of a market downturn. So for us, so as much as I don't want my, you know, my my net worth, I guess, in Vanguard to to drop by thirty or fifty percent, I'm okay with it because actually, you know, I almost kind of wish, hope that would happen because I could just buy more, uh, continue right. earning money, buy more at a discounted price, and then wait for for the economy to go back up. So my, you know, so I don't lose any money. But if you are already fifty five or sixty five, you can't, you know, you need the money now, you know. So that is a, the other type of person I would. Definitely look into this. Bingo. I agree totally. So I guess that kind of goes into after the Harry Dent episode, we talked about, well, what, what are we doing? Are we doing anything different? And I, for me, the same is, is true. I, I think there, you know, it's what the first thing I did after this episode, I went and looked up the Greece debt payment schedule. Mm-hmm. Did I send you a screenshot of that? Uh, I think you did. Oh man, it's, it's alarming. I mean, it's, it's Phil nailed it right on the head. This, so Greece has a ton of debt due this year, starting actually in March, but the March payments are relatively small. But in July, there's this massive payment of like a trillion dollars or something. I mean, I don't know how that can't cause issues. There's no way Greece is going to have that money, right? So I'm not saying that that is going to trigger a worldwide you know, economic depression, but it could. So I think, you know, like you said, Johnny, I'm not doing anything different. I'm definitely being more... Eiffel and, and cautious. But if some, if I was 65 and I was looking to retire and I had a lot of money in the market, I definitely might consider doing something different. Yeah. And you know, I guess if you're in the area where he's having, uh, he's having one of these live events, it sounds like it, it's a good educational event. So have you, have you actually been to one of these? I have. It's amazing. I mean, he's, He's just like he is on audio in person, but he's got a, you know, he's got a big personality. He's, he's been doing this for years. He's, you know, he's, he's just very entertaining and very, uh, very educational to watch. So I will actually leave a link to some of the events. Most of them are either in the Northeast or South Florida, but yeah, go definitely go to it. It's, it was well, well worth the drive and 
the, I, I think we got free tickets cause my dad invests their own, but, um, he's got some really, really smart people that associate with themselves and kind of roll with them. So I would encourage anyone who has the opportunity to get out there and, and see Phil, uh, put on one of his seminars. Yeah, definitely. So I would, I would recommend to anyone with any product, not just with, you know, uh, with Phil's product, but you, get educated, you know, use that time to educate yourself and then, you know, maybe, you know, maybe kind of do your due diligence, ask around, maybe in the boss lounge, uh, with some of the other, mm-hmm. other bosses, uh, before you actually invest in anything, you know, to take, take a look around, shop around. But I think this is a great starting point for your education and once you kind of get to know, you know, the people in person and, and you kind of get all your questions answered, maybe that is something that, you know, you would be into. Uh, I do know that, you know, there's going to be a lot of people kind of put off by his, his, flashy marketing. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a couple of things that I don't necessarily like about it. Um, but I, at the, I think at the end of the day, I mean, f- so for example, one is, you know, one of the things that they, they push a lot is that there are no fees. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, uh, obviously the company has to make money somehow. So even though there are no, you know, uh, commissions or fees, it's, you know, the money that they're going to make is going to be built in summer. And I think with fixed rate annuities, it's built into kind of the, that, that, interest cap. So if the stock market goes up by 10%, but your interest is capped at, you know, 5%, that's how they make their money. So it's definitely not a bad thing. Uh, it's just, you know, you know, people have to realize that there really is no such thing as a, you know, a company that just exists to just, you know, uh, it, to just do charity work for you. Uh, there are, people are going to make money somehow, some way. Yeah. I think the, the, the other side of that is, or at least what for being on the consumer side is because I've had a managed account before, again, with UBS that was pathetic and almost got swindled in a way. And you just, you see these fees mounting and you're not sure where they come, they come from. Uh, so at least with like, with these annuities and these products, like what you get is what you get. If you, if you put in a hundred grand and you say, I'm, I'm, you know, you're getting 3%, that's it. Versus with a professional advisor who says, Yes, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And then all of a sudden your 1% is coming out. And then all of a sudden they're putting you in mutual funds that are taking 2%. And then, you know, all these things just add up. And there's all these little fees that add up. And I mean, I'm firsthand witness to it because I've watched my account get, uh, <laughs> get starved basically over the last three and a half years until finally I said enough's enough. So, uh, so yeah, you're definitely right. Like there's, there's of course fees built into everything. There's a way that Crashproof makes money, and the, and the insurance company build big buildings and stuff. But I think at least with these, what you see is what you get. But always look at the underwriting and consult an attorney or a financial. <laughs> I don't even want to say financial advisor, but some type of consultant if you have any questions. Yeah, and you know what's actually crazy is, I think every single investment, you know, product or vehicle that we've had on the show so far and kind of the, the types that we like and that, that we like to have on the show is on a, an alternative to the traditional financial advisor or mutual fund manager. I think all these are going to be better in so many ways than, you know, than what you do traditionally. So that's why I'm excited to have things like this on. I think the other kind of thing that I didn't like that much, um, is, and I think that can, can put off a lot of people is, the kind of, I don't want to say the hardcore marketing, but, um, things like, 
I was, I was trying to find that video actually that he he had mentioned where he had interviewed the uh, the guy from the SEC. And oh, you got to watch that. It's a, it's incredible. It's, okay, it, we'll have it in the show notes. Yeah, I have that ready to go. Well, here's the thing: is I looked on YouTube and then you know just on on their site, and they didn't have the full interview on. It was just clips. And based off those kind of minute and a half clips, I'm like, you know what? I don't know if what the guy is saying is you know he's on the spot or if it's kind of out of context. You know. So I really think it'd be beneficial for people to watch the whole video. Do we have access to that? I don't know what video I have. I, have, I, I watched the video in the seminar and I have the video for the show notes, but I don't know if it's full or if it's clipped or not. Okay. But but the video in the seminar, it, it wasn't just like minute clips. It was like an actual long form. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was probably, I don't know. I want to say it was at least 10 minutes. Okay. So yeah, as, as long as it's, you know, the, the full interview, I, I think people can, then they can really learn a lot from it. And I think it's always very hard to, to really kind of get what someone's trying to, um, you know, come across if you took, you know, something less than a few minutes, because that could be out of context. Yeah, definitely. Well, it depends on how much time everyone's got. There's, we have a lot of information to share in the show notes. There's a really, really, <laughs> startling audio clip with Jim Cramer. Everyone's used to Jim Cramer on CNBC doing, being a big entertainer, towning and all this. Wait till you listen to this audio clip of what he, how he's talking about how he basically rigs his hedge fund to get appropriate media attention and to basically play games with Wall Street. It will, it will definitely change your view of, of what's what on Wall Street. So when you kind of take all this stuff into, into hand and you look at what the SEC gets away with and or how they govern and what Wall Street does, how hedge fund managers play at a different kind of in a different backyard than the regular investors. You start thinking about all that stuff. And you, you know, that's the whole that's the whole crash proof philosophy is like your retirement is what you worked your entire life for. Do you want to trust Wall Street and do you want to trust the markets and go through the volatility or do you want to structure something that is safe, guaranteed, and is going to help you sleep at light and make sure that what you earned and what you want whole life is not going to be jeopardized by a few hedge fund managers and the media outlets. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree that it's this is a good alternative for people who want their money safe. Uh, I also think that, you know, for people that are a bit younger, aren't, you know, retiring yet. There's a lot of potential upside that we can get. And, you know, something just like, you know, having a index fund with, with Vanguard, something, you know, low fees at potential, you know, that kind of tracks the whole stock market. I think there's a lot of potential that could be missed out on if we had a hundred percent of our money in something that had a, you know, um, that, that was safe with a fixed rate annuity. So I don't think it's for everyone in the world, but I do think there's a lot of people you know, that will fit this demographic. Uh, if you guys, you know, watch those videos and want to comment on it, please join the, the boss lounge on Facebook. You can join it at investlikeaboss.com. If you click on bonus, you get an invite to our private Facebook group where you can talk to the other bosses and the other listeners, uh, as well as some of the, actually the, the past show guests, uh, in the lounge. Cause I am definitely going to watch both those videos, both that S- uh, SEC interview as well as the Jim Kramer interview. Cause that sounds, very, very interesting to me. Definitely. If you guys have any questions, feel free to shoot them to us. We'll get them answered by Phil or contact Crash Proof System directly. We'll leave all the contact information in the show notes. I'm looking forward to listening to that episode again. 
lot of history and philosophy that just kind of warmed me up. I was was uh, listening to it the first time I was taking a run in the gym, and I was like, yeah, this this is cool. Like the whole the whole story about how life insurance started back in the Roman days when the warriors went out went out to fight and they used to throw a gold coin in the pot before. Like that stuff's just really interesting to me. Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely made me kind of look at this as a viable alternative now, which is why I'm so happy we had him on the show. Uh, and to celebrate, this is our hundredth review. So thank, you know, a huge thank you to everyone who's taking the time to log in to the iTunes app to leave us a review. 100 is huge. Sam, Sam, that's, that's amazing, right? Yeah, congratulations, John. It's been a lot of fun. I, I, we're almost at 50 episodes. We'll have to do something fun for that. I think we should almost call 50 episodes season one and then 50 to 100 season two, and we'll just take it by seasons going forward. Yeah, I definitely like that idea. Uh, so big thank you to Miss Heart 26, the 100th interviewer. Uh, she wrote, better late than never, five stars. Stumbled across this podcast a couple months ago, and it is awesome. I'm in my 30s and have never been exposed to the kinds of insights, experience, and definitions of different ways to invest. Love to turn this podcast on while I'm in the gym and get my learn on. Sam and Johnny have definitely changed the way I look at investing and opened my eyes to new options. Only wish I had come across something like this valuable years ago. So thank you, Miss C, Miss, <laughs> Miss Hart, and to everyone else who has taken the time to leave a review of the podcast. Please, please, please log into the iTunes app uh, on your computer um, or on your phone and leave us a review if you've enjoyed the show, if you got a lot of value from it. Yeah, guys. Thanks a lot. That's a wrap. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. See you all next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.